Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. A lot of stuff's been going on. Yeah, Comic-Con happened. Comic-Con happened. I don't think we've said the words Comic-Con on this show in a couple of years. Yeah, it's not usually our beat. No, but stuff happened at Comic-Con. Stuff happened around Comic-Con. You probably know what I'm mentioning, but the uh, debacle with James Gunn and Disney at Comic-Con. We had a bunch of trailers for movies that look interesting and in good ways and in bad ways, we'll just yeah. say that. Um, there was a crazy Star Wars announcement. We've got tons there, lots of good news, a little bit of sad news. Um, we've got a death to talk about. We've got some topics. I'm going to talk more about Octopath Traveler, which I have now played 30 hours of, which means since last week I've played 22 hours. One full day of the last seven days I spent playing Octopath Traveler. That's, means, that's unhealthy. It means I like the game, I think. Uh, it, it should. If not, you have some issues. Yes. You have a comic book adventure you're going to tell us all about? Yes. Yeah, we'll get into that later. All but right. I've been on a great comic quest mm-hmm. um, to try to solve my Spider-Man problems, and I think they are solved. And before we do the stuff, just a couple little things. Uh, quick housekeeping note. Yeah. Sean and I, earlier today, did our first test of how we are going to record the podcast once I am living in Iowa and we are living in different states because yeah. I cannot just drive over to Sean's house. No, we're, yeah, we're not doing the like day-long drive like yes. in the middle at some like CD <laughs> motel to record the podcast. We're not going to record in Kearney, Nebraska, Sean? Yeah. No. <laughs> we, we looked at it. It just didn't seem feasible. It just didn't seem feasible. That's, uh, you know, if we could get the Patreon back up and running and we raised a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. No, even then. For I a much worse podcast, yeah. we would be very exhausted by the time we started recording. <laughs> yes. Anyway, no, we're just going to record it over the internet, and we did the test, and it sounds great, you guys. It Because we're both recording on very nice mics, um, we're both closer up to the mics because we're not sharing them. You know, it's a little more work on our end, but I got to tell you, I cut it together, and it sounded really good. I think you guys are going to really like it, and... You know, I the one thing I guess I was worried about was that not like being right next to each other, it would be weird or something. And it wasn't. It yeah, just it took like, like a, a minute to adjust, and then yeah, yeah. I think it, it it worked well. And it's like, all right, you're the same guy I've been talking to for ten years or whatever. Yes, I'm just on the other side of the computer screen now. Yes. So anyway, that's going to be great. Uh, I'm excited for that. It, you're not going to hear remote recorded podcasts for a while because. We're banking some up for the month of August when I'm going to be on a little bit of a hiatus, but the show's not going away. Um, but yeah, starting in late August, September, we're going to do that, and uh, it means we'll be ready when Doctor Who comes back. Yes, that's, yes. that's the, pr- the pressing issues. Yes. We have to be have the podcast ready for the return of Doctor Who, or we, or yeah. we're, we fire ourselves, basically. My favorite detail from this, Sean, was uh, you know we were doing Google Hangouts, and so we've had video chat up. And I and you were framed like to your right, right above your head, kind of on the wall, was your X Files I Want to Believe poster. Yeah. And it was just it's a pretty great visual of just seeing Sean and the crazy molder poster and just having that and it's like all in one frame. Yeah. It's just it's like, yeah, that that feels right. Yes. That feels right. Yeah, like we talked about on that podcast, we have to make sure we get the camera angles just yes. right for each other. I'll have to put up a poster of something. Yeah, some like weird like Dragon Ball poster or something. Yeah, so we'll figure it out. Anyway, uh, stuff. Uh, what have you been up to, Sean? Do you have any stuff to tell us about? Um, I don't have like any big thing to talk about with Monster Hunter World, but but Monster Hunter World is still very good. Nice. I, I just got a complete set of Anjanath armor, which is something I, I really like the design of. Because the Anjanath is basically this gigantic Tyrannosaurus Rex-looking guy that then shoots fire out of his nose. Nice. Um, and then I, I was like, this is really cool. And you get a cool fucking like fur cape 
if you get his full armor set, and so I, I got that on. And yeah, with Monster Hunter World, one of the things I'm really appreciating about it, even more and more the more I play, is just how much thought and detail goes into the monster designs, and like, you really get this sense that there are a bunch of people back at Capcom and, and the developer that have, like, that could, if they sat down, write, like, a full chapter of a biology textbook about each different monster. Because they have these, like, normal life cycles, and you get a sense of which kinds of the other creatures in the world that they eat, like, kind of which territories they like. Um, one thing I really loved is I was doing a quest earlier today to go get um, these eggs and deliver them back to the camp, which was just, like, a go to this, like, nest of these herbivores, like, kind of, like... I don't know, ankylosaur-looking dinosaur kind of things, and just get their eggs and bring them back. And they don't like it when you do that, and if they knock you around while you're carrying the egg, you drop the egg. So I slaughtered them all, because they're monsters. So it's like, whatever. I kind of felt bad about it, because they're very peaceful, but, you know, fuck it. They respawn, so it's fine, eventually. Um, But yeah, so I killed them all, took the egg, did the walk back to camp, and it was like, but to complete the quest, you need to to get two of those eggs. So I'm like, okay, just gotta go back to the nest, get this, and then I'll be able to, like unlock more stuff back on my home base and when I go back is this really great moment of where I turn the corner and then there's this big I think they're called like coolia kooks or something that they're these big chicken looking guys um, that almost like a cross between a chicken and a velociraptor and they're like you know like twice my height they're probably like 12 feet tall or something like that um, and they have this thing they do where they, when you're fighting them they'll go like pick up rocks and throw them at you because they have they, these like big claw hands and um, I realized the other thing I've seen them do is that they will go in and attack different monster nests and take their eggs and they like smack the eggs with their big beak and then eat the stuff in the egg. And I just like turn the corner to the nest and see one of them just standing there with one of the eggs in its hands and it just turns and looks at me. <laughs> so they have this moment of like, hey man, like you, you too? This nest is like, yeah, they just kind of ran away. I went and grabbed the egg and went back. And it was just this moment of like, feeling like there is this whole ecosystem, this living ecosystem in this world that I really appreciate. And there's so much thought that has gone into that game of how these monsters exist and what they do that, that you just, it, it legitimately felt like, you know, if you're like walking around outside and then you see like this squirrel just like grabbing an acorn, like they, they really capture that very like animalistic feel. The other thing I have started doing is I have started watching through the Mission Impossible movies. I'm so happy, Sean. Yes. And I have watched the first two. I, I finished watching Mission Impossible 2, John Woo's Mission Impossible the 2, uh, last night. And those are two very different movies. They could not be more different, one might argue. Yeah, so yeah, because the first one is directed by, you know, Brian De Palma of, of Scarface fame. And it is a very, you know, it's, it's not like the most amazing movie in the world, but it has this like really solid meat and potatoes like... Spy thriller. It is a know? classy spy thriller. Yeah. It is cerebral, and it, it's the kind of movie that does not get made anymore on mm-hmm. that budget at all. It's very adult, cerebral, classy. I think the action scene in the, or the set piece in the middle where yes. they have to go into Langley. Yeah, the heist scene. That is one of, it's like 20 minutes long. It is one of my favorite set pieces in any spy movie ever. And it's the kind of thing of where you see that scene be quoted and like done something with either in like a comedic fashion or like a straight weird kind of just ripping off the scene with the, you know, dropping to the floor and all that stuff. Um, but one thing, because I've never seen Mission Impossible 1 or 2 before, the only one I've seen before was 3. I didn't realize that in that scene they do it completely silent all oh, yeah. the way through. And that's the thing that nobody else I've ever seen do that scene has never done that. There's always this like big pulse-pounding, like, James Bond spy music going on when I see those scenes done in other things. It's like, what makes that scene work is it is 
it's like watching 2001 A Space Odyssey and they're out like doing astronaut shit. Yep. It is completely silent. And, and that movie has a great score. It's Danny Elfman, and yeah. it's a really good score. Uh, but yeah, and he knows where to like cut it out. And that, that 20 minutes, just nothing. And it is amazingly edited, shot, put together, acted. Yeah. Like, yeah. Tom I, Cruise is a little Tom Cruise baby in that movie. He looks so young. It's been a long time since I'd seen his Tom Cruise movie, maybe before like the year 2000. It's yeah. Like, holy shit, little baby Tom Cruise. Yeah, if you rough, like to me, like 99 Eyes Wide Shut is when he starts looking like adult Tom Cruise. Yes, yeah. And maybe it's because of the content of Eyes Wide Shut, I don't know. But yes, like once you get to Mission Impossible 2, other than the haircut, he looks like Tom Cruise. 96 Mission Impossible, he's still Still looks like a baby. Yeah, and but that's that's great. Yeah, so that movie is a lot I, of fun. Can I also just say I fucking love the ending to that movie uh-huh. because that's the thing. That movie has a crazy final set piece, the thing on the bullet train. But I think it gets to do that because it is so sober for so long. Yes. The one thing is though, and you'll get this once you watch the rest of them, Sean. It's a little distracting that that one is clearly done on a green screen in a soundstage mm-hmm. because today there's no fucking way Tom Cruise would not just do that in real life and make them get a bullet train in France. He would sign a bunch of insurance waivers. And he, would he would find just, some way to both be hanging onto the bullet train and be flying the helicopter at the same time. Probably. He'd find some way to do both those roles. I also just love the fucking last one-liner where he has that stick of gum yeah. and he goes, red light, green light, slams it on the yeah. thing and it blows up. Man. Uh, Don't know where he got another one of the sticks of gum. Yeah. I'll say Mission Impossible 1 is an interesting movie where it's undergone a genuine critical reevaluation because yeah, when it came out, people sense. people didn't like it when it came out, especially because that's the only one that has a direct connection to the TV series where right. the John Voight character is supposed to be the same guy who was the main character in Mission Impossible, the TV show, and people who, like, in 96, people still knew that show, yeah. and, like, were really mad about that, and they didn't like the movie, and now I think people go back to it, and because it is just movies are not made like that anymore, it's, like you said, it's not like it's the greatest movie ever, but I think, as you say, Meat and Potatoes, it does all of that really well, and it's very fun to watch, and... You, I think a lot of people now would say, well, that's clearly one of the best Mission Impossibles. Yeah, and, and I, one, of the things I I was, one of the things I was really shocked by going into it was I was I was really expecting it to feel very dated because yeah. most movies made in that period in the 90s, I, have not, I don't have much of a taste for. And it's just like, it's kind of like the Independence Day kind of thing. Like, those movies just feel so dated. There's nothing worse than a 90s blockbuster. Yeah, and Mission Impossible doesn't feel like that at all. Like, that movie feels like you could have basically made that movie in the 70s, yep. and, and you it, wouldn't bat an eye at it. It looks like a 70s movie. Yeah. Like, the st- like, the Blu-ray actually looks very nice. Mm-hmm. The stock it's shot on, it's a very grainy 35. It does not look like a 90s movie. Yes, but Mission Impossible 1 not feeling dated is then a very interesting transition to Mission Impossible 2, which is maybe the most early 2000s movie Ever to oh yes, yeah. it's so. It's very much was made close to the release, like right after the release of the Matrix. It very much is like in that whole sphere of yep. you know John Woo coming over from America and from or, or yeah Kong. coming to America from Hong Kong. Um, and and it is one of the, it is like all of his American movies, like a Face Off or something. It is all of the ridiculous John Woo action stuff he did in Hong Kong. But then all, like, the story and character stuff is as heightened and weird as the action, which is, like, his classic Hong Kong stuff, like Hard Boiled, works because all, like, like Chow Yun-Fat is very grounded in those movies and is, like, I'm just, like, a beat cop. And then that just gets rolled into this, these giant action scenes that are awesome, but, like, the characters are very grounded and normal. When he came to America, he just kind of threw that away. <laughs> it was just, like... Well, as you say, it was this perfect meeting of... 
American action movies were losing their goddamn minds yeah. just as John Woo came to make them and it was this kind of like weird match made in heaven kind of yeah it's it, yeah Impossible Mission Impossible 2 is a very strange movie I appreciated that they dedicate like a full five minutes of the opening credits to Tom Cruise just mountain climbing oh yeah well, like with, with this ridiculous hard rock version of the Mission Impossible theme that feels like it is basically the Mission Impossible theme if they put it into a Dragon Ball movie Yes, is the American released Dragon Ball movie at the, at the time, and that is the birth of like Tom Cruise crazily doing his own stunts. Yeah, because he actually was climb like free climbing that with like there's some kind of harness they maybe digitized out, but like he had to really fight them on it of being like the, the studio being like we can't insure you if you're gonna free climb a mountain, and he's like, well, I'm not wearing no harness, and they're like you have to do something, Tom. We could lose everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I can't wait until they write to the next Mission Impossible movie that is like, he's fucking gets like shot in the back with a shotgun. It's like, just shoot it! Just shoot it, man! Just, I'm gonna t- like, take my shirt off, you shoot me in the back with a shotgun, I'm, let's just go. It's yeah. like, I'll live, probably I'm Tom Cruise, I don't know. <laughs> His thetan levels are really high, yeah. guys. Yeah, no, but, but yeah, we talked, because this will be kind of weird because we talked about this a little bit when we did the test podcast, so I'll yes. try not to just make all the same jokes I did on that. Um, it's okay. Yeah, but yeah, with the. The the best part about Mission Impossible Two and, and and Tom Cruise is how completely different the character of Ethan Hunt is. Yes. It is it is a totally different human being. In particular, although he, by the end of the movie, he feels a little bit closer to the like normal spy thrown in like this big scenario thing that he had in the first movie. And from what I remember, that's kind of what he feels like in Mission Impossible Three, maybe with a bit more like kind of gravitas at that point because there's been a couple of movies. But in Mission Impossible Two, at the beginning. They front load it with a lot of him being this really weird, like, creepy flirt. Yes. Um, and it's that whole sequence where he goes and has to recruit uh, Nanny Thuton and, and, like, Tandy Newton. Tandy Newton. Yeah. Um, fuck. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's that whole scene, and throughout the entire scene, it's like this weird, again, very early 2000s, like, we basically shot it like they're having sex, but they're not having sex. But it, you would shoot this scene the way it's a sex scene to make it feel like these are two hot people that want to have sex with each other. There is no way to describe the car chase they have other than car intercourse. Like, yeah. they, they fuck with cars. Not they get in a car and fuck. Like, that's a normal yeah, thing in a movie. They are in cars and their cars fuck. Yeah. It is... And, and just watch it. You'll know what I mean. It's basically... There's a scene like that in GoldenEye. It's just a James Bond scene, but done as, again, like, John Woo crazy early 2000s car intercourse. It's yeah. nuts. Which is something that the Ethan Hunt character from the first movie never would do. He's so serious in the first movie. He's serious spy man. And in this, he's just like, he's cracking wise all the time. They did, Apparently, John Woo or the screenwriter or whoever really loved the line of like... I can't tell them I'm on vacation because then it wouldn't be a vacation anymore. Because they say that line like four times over the course of the whole movie. They keep on going back to it. It's like, it's like, that's a fine throwaway line at the beginning when Tom Cruise does it for the first time. It's not such a great line that you need to keep on, on hitting it again. Uh, well, how do you th- what do you think of Anthony Hopkins as the most sexist British man in the history of the cinema? The most sexist British man, and also Anthony Hopkins didn't want to be there. He, oh, no. He rushes through every line as if it, there was like a contest off screen. Just like, let's see how quickly, Anthony, you can say all these lines of dialogue. Because 
it's particularly exaggerated because I feel like usually Anthony Hopkins is that kind of like prestige British actor that has usually has almost the opposite problem of like he spends five minutes saying a single sentence to try to give the right level of weight to every single syllable of every single word and stuff like that's very much his performance in Westworld there are some scenes where it's like you have just become a parody of yourself at some point Anthony Hopkins um in this movie it is at times I thought maybe they actually sped up the footage because it's just like <laughs> this is ridiculous how quickly he's saying this shit and it doesn't he only has the two scenes and yes he does not want to be there for them he is collecting a paycheck yeah and I, moving I, on he doesn't show up in any of the other movies right no this is just that yeah so far and this will change with the new one there's been a different head of the Impossible Missions Force in every movie. Uh, it was Alec Baldwin in the last one, and he'll be back in this new one. So, um, But th- this new one is a direct sequel to Five, so it'll be the first one for most of that. But yeah. The next one is Lawrence Fishburne. So, oh, right. Okay, yeah. yes. I forgot that he was in It's good. It's good. Yeah. I don't remember if there is... Oh, the fourth movie is Tom Wilkinson, but only for one scene. And he's great. But yes. Yeah. Uh, so here's my theory on Mission Impossible 2, and I want to hear if you agree with it. Okay. I don't think it's a good movie. I think my most no. objective... Like, it is an atrocious screenplay. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. But I think it's an amazing fucking film. It's, yeah. Like, John Woo just has a lot of fun zooming the camera dramatically into people's eyes over and over again, and... Just, like, the melodrama of it. Like, I remember the scene... In I, I love this fucking scene where he goes and like gets into the lab so he can destroy the virus. Yes, and then, yeah. And then the other guy comes in and he's got Tandy Newton. And at the end, like Tandy Newton injects herself with the virus. And Tom Cruise does not, I think, literally do this, but I just see him as Daniel Day Lewis in Last of the Mohicans going, "Stay alive, I'll find you." I mean, does he do that? That's basically, what he okay, does he because does. he like blows the. Open like an explosive on the wall. Yeah. It says it's like, you've got 23 hours and 58 minutes. Stay alive. I will come back for you. Okay, that's And then he runs and he jumps out and parachutes out the side of the building. And then the villain goes over and like looks and is like, he's gone. And it has this like big like operatic music over it. It's like, it is so like histrionic, melodramatic, and I fucking love it. There is basically two songs on the soundtrack for Mission Impossible 2, and that's a hard rock version of the Mission Impossible theme, and then like opera music. Yes. Yeah. And there is also early on a very bad flamenco dance dance number by Hans Zimmer, which is weird. Yeah, that that was one of those scenes where it's like, I can tell what you're going for with this scene. But it's like you're trying to do like a Moulin Rouge kind of thing, but it's not working. No. Like this is isn't working. Like I don't know what it is, but this is not working out the way you want. But especially the last thirty minutes of that. Okay. Yeah, I mean once once you get John Woo into his wheelhouse with the action stuff, it's fucking awesome. And and it's all the stuff of like, you know, henchmen like all the henchmen have to have shotguns because it blows open like the fucking scenery really good and sends chunks of concrete all over the place and he loves that shit. It's a lot of Tom Cruise diving through the air with two guns shooting, which is another one of those where it's like, it's a completely different character. It's one of those, like, they would never do that. Like, that's, that's a terrible... Terrible way to shoot a gun. There's a whole scene in Mission Impossible 3 that's like a direct refutation of that where Hunt has one bullet left and he has to make the perfect shot. And it's like the complete anti-Mission Impossible 2 where they have just endless clips. But yeah, that whole... The, the scene of him walking... Across the door yeah. in the fire and the dove, and then the th- the whole motorbike chase at the end is so amazing. And I love the way he gets the drop on the bad guy at the end, where the gun is buried in the sand. <laughs> yeah. So the dude fires, and he just drops, you know, Neo in the Matrix style, kicks the gun up, grabs it, and then fires. It is so stupid. 
Yeah, I think my favorite part of the whole movie is the um, before that when uh, he has had the fight with like the second in command outside, right. and then it cuts to the the room with the bad guy in it, and then. Ethan Hunt, quote unquote, comes in on his knees, like being dragged, and, and the the henchman guy, like I got him. It's like, oh, why is he only mumbling? I broke his jaw, and it's just this whole log sequence where you know because they have done the fucking mask thing. Everybody in this movie has a like re- super hyper realistic Tom Cruise mask. Yes, even Tom Cruise, because <laughs> it's very important. Because it's the whole bizarre twist of. Actually, I, Ethan Hunt, have defeated the the bad guy, Henchman Man, and then dressed him up and put this super mask over his face to make it look like he's me. And I brought a mask of him so I can look like him. So I got into the room so I can steal the shit. And it is just the slow realization of the bad guy when after he shoots the, the fake Ethan Hunt and is kind of gloating about it. And then this is slow zoom on like the finger with the bandage so he knows, wait... And that's the bandage from the dude because I fucked up his finger earlier in the movie. And then slow zoom in on the villain's eyes, slow zoom in on the finger, slow zoom in on the eyes, and it's, and it's just opera does, music over all of it. Opera music is blaring over all of it, and, and it's just this like. And he goes and he rips the mask off, and it's the guy who goes ah, and then he turns around and the shit's gone, and, and actually Ethan Hunt is walking away. And he rips the mask off of the bad guy and walks out. That's the best scene of the whole movie. That's, a, that's the most John Woo scene in many ways. I just love it. There are more masks in Mission Impossible 2 than in all the other ones combined by several times. Like Do they keep on doing that after Mission Impossible 2? They usually like reserve it for like a set piece. Like, okay. like uh, 4 almost does none of it. Um, 5 uses it like once... Three has one very significant thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman that is like the impetus for the plot, but they do it more like you know I think the TV show would have done, which is that like maybe one time in the story, yeah. but not like the entire story revolves around people having instant access to masks. Because we also in Mission Impossible Three see how they make the masks, and it's but it takes forever, and it's a very fun thing, but it is completely incompatible with the way they do it in Mission Impossible Two. Yeah, because that is like why do you have Ethan Hunt an Ethan Hunt mask? Yes. And where and when did you make the mask for the other dude? It's like, we know for sure it's been less than 24 hours. It's like, there's a time limit here. When did you fucking get these goddamn masks? These, like, super masks. I know. Well, anyway, um, Fallout comes out next week. And yep. we will be reviewing that movie, and I assume you'll see three, four, five before then. Yes, yeah, I'm and doing we'll, one a day. Yeah, and we'll just talk about the rest of them next week. And I'm because also Mission Impossible Fallout it sounds so good. I cannot wait. It looks so good. Yeah, this is the movie of the summer for me. I can't fucking wait. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to watch the rest of these to rewatch yeah. Mission Impossible three because I haven't seen that movie since I was like twelve or thirteen or something. Yeah. it's been a long it's time. So good. And then yeah, and then watch the new ones. One, three, five are my favorites. I also really like four. And I fucking love two. Yeah, two for totally different reasons. Two is like one of those. I I like it when a franchise has like that black sheep entry. You know? Oh yeah, it's it's something that's like it gives the franchise a little bit of life. You know. Yes. It's so weird. All right. Well, anyway, uh, I had one other quick thing of stuff to say, Sean, mm-hmm. which is just, and I'll make it quick because we're uh, running long here. But WarioWare Gold is coming out in a couple weeks, and it is the new WarioWare game for 3DS. And that alone would not be all that notable, but a demo came out, and we finally, it was in the EU eShop for uh, like a week, and then finally we got it in North America because Nintendo doesn't coordinate stuff. And I've been playing it, and it's wonderful. But the news here is that Wario talks now. Have you seen this, Sean? No, I didn't know. WarioWare Gold is a fully voiced game. 
Like, it has story stuff, and Wario talks. So, and when you say he talks, because he's always had, like, a vocal performance, yeah. but it's always been just like a... <laughs> full sentences. Okay. Full sentences. I didn't know that Wario and, was even capable of expressing full sentences. And Sean, it is the most wonderful thing in the world. He is voiced in full by Charles Martinet, the Mario yeah. guy, who yeah. has also done Wario in the past. Yeah, he's, he's and the it Mario, is, Wario, Luigi, Waluigi yeah. guy. He does all. It is a wonderful performance it is like you hear Wario voiced and you're like Ugh. but you hear the game like watch the cutscenes online Sean they are fucking wonderful his voice is amazing I am loving it so much the game itself is really fun because it's a mix of all the different WarioWares um, so like mini games from all the other WarioWare games but also new ones and it's even arranged I think very conveniently into like do you want to play games that just use buttons or just oh, use touch controls or nice. just use tilt controls so that's really cool because uh, it like represents all the different eras but in all of that Wario talks to you it's Charles Martinet and if that weren't good enough there is also a Japanese version of this Sean what and Japanese Wario is amazing oh my god yeah oh my fucking god okay I do we need to pause the podcast for a second and listen to Japanese Wario let's let's, we're going to pause okay alright so Sean yeah Sean you have just heard the beauty that is voiced Wario in both English and Japanese is your life complete now? What the fuck, dude? It's so good. It's it's really good. It is something where, like, it, in Japanese, it worked for me okay because I have no preconceptions of Japanese Wario, so it's just like it worked. Um, but yeah, what, hearing like full voice lines from Charles Martinet that's not just like a let's say go, you know, or you know, Wario doesn't have a catchphrase, so I don't know what his. It's a Wario. Yeah, it's a Wario. But yeah, hearing full voiced sentences is very, very strange. There is nothing on earth I want more now, Sean, than a Saturday morning cartoon with Wario and his friends, voiced with Charles Charles Martinet, and then a Japanese voices all of the characters. (laughs) Do you think that this happened because Charles Martinet showed up at Nintendo of America and was like, listen guys, I appreciate that you give me all this money. When I don't do almost any work because I say like two lines, you make fucking Super Mario Odyssey. I have like three lines, then you just like have a whole like voice bank probably that use all the other shit because I can't imagine he has to go what every single time he has to go for every single Mario game ever. Uh, it's like I just wanna I just wanna do some work, you know. I just want I just I'm a voice actor by trade. The last time I did it was in Skyrim. I was that dragon. It's yeah, been it's like eight years. Weirdly, even though I have almost no lines of dialogue as this character of Mario, I am horribly typecast as Mario, and therefore it's very difficult for you to get work. So you, the least you could do is let me actually play a character. Yes, it's great. Now you know they're making that Mario movie with Illumination. They just need to have Charles Martinet do all the voices. Yes, that's the one thing that will get me in the door. Have him voice Mario. You can get John Leguizamo back for Luigi. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But yeah, no, I it's amazing. Uh, I could not find the name of the Japanese voice actor because the one who has done Wario in the past died recently in 2016. So I, I can't find the name of the new guy. This is probably the first project he's done it for. I'm like 90% certain it's the guy who does Jiraiya from Naruto. So nice. He's, he's in a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I've already pre-ordered and preloaded the game because I cannot fucking wait. And I had some Nintendo credit. And, uh, yeah, I'll be, that comes out August 3rd, so I'll be reviewing that. I'm sure I'll at least watch some YouTube videos it looks to save myself every once in a while. Because now I need this. I didn't I know just, I needed it, but now I do. If we don't get the Saturday morning cartoon, can we at least get, like, a visual novel with Wario? It'd be so good. The Wario's Romance Adventure. Yes. It's, <laughs> all right. Let's move on, Sean. Let's do some news. 
What's been happening in the news, Jonathan? A lot of crazy shit, so let's start with uh, maybe the most sane but also kind of sad piece of news, which is the passing of the great Shinobu Hashimoto, who died this week at the age of 100. On the dot. On the dot. And if you do not know the name Shinobu Hashimoto, then you absolutely know his credits. Because this man, he was a screenwriter in Japan. He had over 70 writing credits. These include... For Akira Kurosawa, Rashomon, which was his first produced screenplay. Ikiru, Seven Samurai, I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, Dodeskaden, and others. For Masaki Kobayashi, he wrote Harakiri and Samurai Rebellion. For Hihachi Okamoto, he wrote The Sword of Doom and Samurai Assassin. This is a small sampling of his work. Every movie title I just named is in the Criterion Collection. This guy might... I did not... I was not able to get an accurate count of this, but I would not be surprised if he has more movies with his name on it in the Criterion Collection than just about anyone else. Yeah. Because of how many people he's written for. Um, Stephen Prince, who is a famous uh, scholar of Japanese film, uh, just last month wrote a tribute to this man for his 100th birthday. Um, And I just want to read the first paragraph here because I think it's really good. He said, Can a screenwriter influence even change the course of film history? With his script for Rashomon in 1950, Shinobu Hashimoto, who turned 100 this year, did just that. The film launched its director, Akira Kurosawa, to world fame and brought international audiences to the glory of Japanese cinema. Hashimoto's script provided the foundation for these outcomes, and though it wasn't his first scenario, it was the first of his works produced as a film. This was a remarkably audacious beginning for a writer who penned nearly 80 scripts during a lengthy career and who collaborated with many of the great directors of Japan's golden age of cinema, Kurosawa, Tadashi Imai, Mikio Narusei, Kihachi Okamoto, Masaki Kobayashi. His scripts helped to build the magnificent edifice that cinema became in these years. This is one of the most important people in the history of film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's one of those of where if you have any of the Criterion versions of the movies he's worked on, I know for sure on Harakiri, the first time I became specifically aware of Hashimoto and like his body of work was he was interviewed uh, for the Criterion version of Harakiri. Or it was either for that or they had pulled it and right. they had done for something else. I don't know which. Um, but yeah, he there's a pretty lengthy section of that, of the bonus material on that release that with him and him talking through his screenwriting process, him talking about how he works with the different directors, Kobayashi and Kurosawa and others to like how they craft the screenplay together. It seems like it's a little bit different from how you like screenplays are made today in like the modern Hollywood system. Um, but yeah, it's, he was a fascinating man, fascinating career. Um, you know, wrote the screenplays for two of my 10 favorite movies ever. I think I might've had two of his on my list. I at least had seven samurai. Um, it's amazing. And, like, you should read that article by Stephen Prince because it's a very good overview of his biography as well because he had just a very interesting life, as you were saying. And just, I mean, good God, he worked with so many greats in what I think many people would argue is one of the best periods of cinema in the history of cinema, maybe the best, certainly one of the most influential and important. And, you know, it wasn't just that he, like, you know, wrote down the story ideas of these guys because he did it for so many people. Clearly, it was a huge talent on his part. And, you know, a lot of these were co-written with those famous directors. But those are great scripts. I mean, the reason we have the term the Rashomon effect is because of how Rashomon is written, you know. And we have a lot of other things from how it's directed, right? But, man, I... Like, his first work being Rashomon is like Orson Welles' first thing being Citizen Kane. It's one of those just utterly insane stats to have on your resume. You know, a movie that changed the world. 
and then all those other credits. I mean, I just wanted to take a second to talk about this guy because I didn't know he was still alive. You know, I guess I just wouldn't have assumed. It, you know, Rashomon was in 1950. Most people who worked on it are not with us anymore. Yeah. But he lived to the ripe old age of 100, uh, as Japanese people often do. And uh, they're a little bit healthier over there. Um, and yeah, just what a life, what a career. Uh, go watch some of the movies he worked on. Yeah, absolutely. Like, throw a dart at his filmography. You will see a good movie. Yes, if not like one of the best movies you've ever seen. Oh, absolutely. So, that's so cool. Uh, I'm glad we get to talk about him a little bit, and rest in peace. Yeah. All right. Uh, a couple other pieces of random news before we get to Comic-Con, Sean. I'm going to talk more about the game Octopath Traveler and its quality later on, but it is notable that this game has been selling like absolute fucking hotcakes. Oh, yeah. It sold so strongly in its debut that physical copies are currently sold out around the world. It is on back order uh, in Amazon in many regions. It's actually mostly come back into stock here, but I know in some parts of the world it was like two to four months back order. Uh, so much so that Square Enix did the rare thing of issuing an apology for their stock levels on their Japanese Twitter. Uh, it debuted number one on the Japanese charts, number three in the UK, where it doubled the sales of Bravely Default. We don't have charts in the US, but it apparently is doing very well. Um, yeah, and this is a game that uses sprite artwork and is like a traditional style sort of JRPG. Yeah. Um, the Nintendo Switch, I think, is having a bit of an effect. Yeah, it's a Nintendo Switch, and I, and I think there's also... I think it's the combination of the Nintendo Switch and, like, the nostalgia thing that Octopath yeah. Traveler has of, like, the Nintendo Switch helps make it visible to people in a way that, like, you know, all those kinds of games like Bravely Default and 3DS went very much under the radar, and unless you were, like, kind of looking for it, you didn't know it existed. Whereas, like, Switch can put something like that in the spotlight, yep. and then there are... A lot of people who love these kinds of games and grew up playing 16-bit RPGs, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, Bravely Default is one where that came, like, out in the U.S. two or three years after its right. Japanese debut. Because yeah. Square has made games like this for a while, but for a long time they just never got localized. Bravely Default was one of their first big, like, put the toe in the water for that. It did very well for its size, but as you say, it was not this, like, massive worldwide release with, like, the weight of Nintendo behind it. Bravely Default was not on an E3 stream. Exactly, yeah. It wasn't, like, the subject of multiple different E3 directs, yeah. you know? But I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it proves that it's filling a hunger that audiences clearly have. Yeah. And I'll say playing it, I absolutely had it. I think it's a phenomenal fuck. It might be my game of the year. It's amazing. Um... And yeah, I, I think this probably means that we are going to get Novimpath Traveler this time next year. There you go. Did you, did you have to look that up? I did because I didn't know if it was just the November thing or if it was like... Uh, there are other routes you could use. Novem yes. was the only one I knew on the chart. So yeah, It doesn't sound as good as Octopath. No. Yeah. No, Novimpath. But yes. Or maybe just Octopath Traveler 2 with eight other people. I don't know. But there's clearly going to be more. Um, it's awesome. I just... I, I think it's and that's the other thing is that like games do not sell out anymore and that's one of the interesting yeah. things. Well, I think is is probably I assume Square Enix did not in any way expect this game no. to sell this well. That's what they said basically is that they they did not anticipate stock levels correctly. But like you would hear about that a lot maybe ten fifteen years ago when yeah. games were primarily sold physically. But now if you can get a game digitally, you don't need the physical copy, so sellouts don't really happen. And also just stock levels were better at predicting those. So. It's pretty crazy, and I just I saw that headline, and I was like, "Wow, it's been a while since a major AAA release had that kind of like this game is sold out." Yeah, you know. So anyway, I recommend this game. It's very good, but we'll talk about that later. Sean, here's an exciting piece of news for you. Uh huh. 
Zatoichi, it's one of your favorite series. Yes, absolutely. A couple years ago, Criterion Collection did the heroic work of giving us a box set with all of the original films in nice, restored quality in one place for the first time ever. Yep. Uh, the TV show has been out there for a while. But there is another Zatoichi movie from 1989 that has never been on home video in the United States, to my understanding. At least not no. on Blu-ray. No, definitely not on Blu-ray. I think it had like a DVD release. Because okay. I saw it, it was on Hulu... But through a different company than Criterion. Because back before Filmstruck, Criterion had most of its stuff up on Hulu as a streaming service. Which that's how I originally watched the Zatoichi stuff. And then you watch the 1989 Zatoichi movie. It was like, why is the quality so much worse? It's like, oh, wait. It's 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 not not Criterion. Criterion. It's a different film producing production company. I told you about this earlier today. We were very excited to hear. It is coming to Blu-ray for the first time from a company called Tokyo Shock. They've gotten the very difficult to obtain rights to this movie and are doing a full remaster and giving it the tender love and care I'm sure it deserves. But yeah, this is the one, I think, wasn't it directed by... um, Shintaro Katsu? Yeah. yeah. He's the actor for Zatoichi. Yeah, he's a great, great director as well. He directed also... Which one is it? Uh, Zatoichi In Desperation, um, which is one of the latter-day Zatoichi movies, which is one of the best. He also directed... Because the only... Only, like, the first season and kind of, like, half of season two of the TV show are available over here. But of those, because those are the only ones I've been able to see because they are very difficult to find um, in a lot of ways. Uh, he directed a couple of the episodes. And basically every single direct episode he directed were, like, the best episodes. So, nice. yeah. I don't remember specifically that much about Zatoichi 1989, or as I'm seeing here on the Wikipedia page, the American title, Zatoichi, Darkness is His Ally, which is not the title. The title of that movie is just Zatoichi, but they they just put that that subtitle on there. Well, there's like five movies just called Zatoichi at this point. Yes, there's at least three. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I don't remember a lot about it specifically, but I'm sure it is very good. Yeah, and I forgot we didn't have the whole TV series. Um, Maybe Criterion can do that too? Maybe, I don't know. Like even in, like, because I went through a period of like, fuck it, I'm just going to get Japanese DVDs or something of this, even those are hard to find. That's crazy. They only made like one printing of them in Japan. That's too bad. Criterion has done like two TV things. They've done the uh, Decalogue and they did um, the Berlin Alexander Platz. Now those are both also kind of movies. But it would be cool if they just did another crazy Zatoichi box. Yeah, because there are four seasons. There's over 100 episodes of the Zatoichi TV show. There's a lot of Zatoichi. Yes, there's a lot of Zatoichi out there. Some of it is hard to find. and it, it is a constant bugbear of mine that I don't just have all of it. Because, At least all the movies are here. Now. Yes, because the Zatoichi TV show, kind of like with the, um, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms show I watched, the 90s one from China, like... Watching it makes you really recontextualize and reassess your assumptions about t- the history of television. That I think is like in this era of where we talk about you know TV, TV, and like the golden age of television, all that. And I think there's a misunderstanding of yo. There was a lot of really fucking amazing TV shows being made that were cinematic and like movies and all that shit back then. Because the only difference, like practically speaking, between the TV show Zatoichi and the movie Zatoichi is a little bit less budget and they're half as long. But it is the same people working on it. It's the same acting. It's the same like sense of cinematography. Like everything else is the exact well, same. Well, and that's actually one of the interesting things is that the peak TV conversation, what it specifically erases is foreign TV. Yeah. And that's fine. If we're just talking about American TV and you're clear on the boundaries of the discussion, there's nothing wrong with that. But in other countries, 
the the lines between TV and film that we're seeing blurred now in America have always been blurred overseas. That's yeah. just been a a constant refrain. Like when I said the Decalogue and Berlin Alexanderplatz uh, as Criterion editions, those are significant because those are those directors also just worked in TV, but they just they were making films. It was like the, some of them were on TV, some of them were in theaters, but it was it was just filmmaking, you yeah. know, um, kind of like how David Lynch I think has approached Twin Peaks or something over here. Um, and I think you're probably I think you're exactly right. Like Zatoichi probably falls into that exact same thing, which is why I wouldn't be surprised if Criterion were interested in that TV show if they were yeah. interested in the movies, like. There'd be no reason not to be. Um, as you say, the, who knows what the rights issue is. But yeah. But yes, Satoichi is great. People should watch Satoichi. You can start with any of them because it's that kind of movie franchise where there's no real continuity. Yeah. And, and you know, I will probably end up picking up this this Blu-ray because the last time I watched that movie was like in 2014 or something and not in the... It was like very noticeably not as good quality. Yeah. Every time there's a Criterion sale, I, I want to pick up Zatoichi, and then they've always released a million new fucking things, yeah. and I don't have the money for it. At some point, I will do it. Maybe this November. Who knows? Except this November, they're putting out the fucking Ingmar Bergman set. So I don't know. Anyway. I know which one of those two I would buy. Yeah. Eh, good point. All right. Anyway, let's do uh, Comic-Con news, Sean. Okay, yeah. This is going to be a roller coaster. Just strap the fuck in. There's right? a lot. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. Let's start with the thing I think we're most excited for, which is Doctor Who! Okay, yes. The, Do- most, the, most, the product I'm most excited for, not necessarily the thing I'm most excited to talk about that came out okay, of Okay, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Doctor Who, uh, we both have the 45-second trailer they put out, which yeah. is wonderful. I want to talk about that. We also have days of Jodie Whittaker just being a fucking awesome human being uh-huh, at Comic-Con. Yeah. You know, you've talked about this before, Sean, that, like, you know, most of the job of the Doctor is being an actor and doing your work on screen. But also, you are the ambassador for the show, and you interact with the fans, and most Doctors are very good at this, and that's part of what makes them iconic. And Jodie Whittaker is already killing it at that part of the job. Absolutely, yeah. That's And it, it reminds me of way back when, when Peter Capaldi had his first Comic-Con panel, which obviously that was the first time that we were paying attention to, like, the announcement of a new Doctor and all that kind of stuff, and had the same feeling of, like... Fuck, like this, we haven't even really seen anything of this person playing this character, but they are already in it. You know, yep. they're already in that mode. They're with the fans. Like, they, they know how to talk about the show and carry the enthusiasm and communicate all of that, which is so important for a show like Doctor Who, which is very focused on its, like, central star, which is weird about the show because it changes its central star exactly. every two years or so. But it is, like, there's so much gravity to that performance in that person um, in the show. And, yeah, she's absolutely doing everything that 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 person needs to be able to do. And just like she did that funny video where she was in London and then went to get on the plane to Comic-Con or tried to use the TARDIS but they yeah. wouldn't let her and then she put on sunglasses and now I really want her to also have sonic sunglasses because yes. they look good on her too. If, yes, if there's one thing to carry over from the Stephen Moffat years, it is the sonic sunglasses. Abs- Bring them back. Absolutely. Uh, and then there was the panel where she just had a lot of really fun and in- interesting and smart answers. Mm-hmm. And then she was on, she did the fashion show thing where she just came out in like a more like fashionable version of the doctor's costume and did that and like walked the runway. She did, uh, like a women in like TV panel that was really cool. It's just, she's awesome. I'm yeah. really glad that like she's taken to it so well and I'm just I'm excited to see her as the Doctor, and I'm just it feels like we are comfortably entering this era, and everything feels good. You yes, know? yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that includes the trailer, which is not a ton of footage, but we do get a yeah. delightful monologue, which includes the line, "If I ask really, really nicely, will you be my new best friends?" Which is the most Doctor thing, and I yeah. love it. 
And it is something of where it now makes more sense to me that they had released that, like, the weirder teaser for the World Cup thing that's, like, not, clearly not, episode, like, footage from direct episodes or anything like that. Because that was, like, this very broad thing to, like, get people who maybe don't know that much about Doctor Who kind of, like, curious about the show. Whereas this is the, okay, you want to see stuff from, like, you want the pitch on the actual series because you're fans of Doctor Who and see some of the footage and stuff like that. And that's what this, like, again, like you said, it's only 50 seconds or so, so it's not a huge amount. It's not, like, super deep. It's not a full trailer or something, but it is enough of, like, you get a sense of the aesthetic of the show. I think it's, it's clear that there's a, like, kind of brighter tone, more emphasized, which there's always a very, like, a variable tone to Doctor Who. But I think a lot of, like, the Moffat years liked to kind of get into the darkness a bit, particularly, like, Peter Capaldi was very good at that. He was very much in, like, more of the Robert Holmes vein of, yes. like, let's do some horror stuff. Yeah, and this has, like, a... Almost, like, because specifically that Best Friends line reminds me a lot of the second Doctor in that kind of, like, bubbly, like, let's just go bounce around the universe and, like, hop and skip around. You know, it's like Patrick Trouton dancing on the beach or whatever. Yes. And getting me the world. It's basically that, right? Uh-huh. It, it, gives, it gives me that feeling, and it's cool to be like, okay, it's clear... Again, every single thing we've seen so far from, like, production stills and announcements and them, like, getting different people behind the scenes in, them getting, like, different actors in, and the kind of the pitch for this new take on Doctor Who is very much they are making it their own thing, yep. which I'm super excited for, because it's what the show always needs. It's the right move. Yeah, it looks very good, both in that it looks like good Doctor Who, but also it visually looks very nice. Yeah. I like having the crew and seeing them all run around together. Um, the last shot where she is behind like a plastic screen and goes, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Is both funny and also feels like she might be about to dissect a dead body, yeah. which is also, either of those could be very Doctor Who things. Yeah. So yeah, um, you know, we did not like get a sense of the new TARDIS or anything. They're keeping that back, but we did get the new sonic screwdriver. Right, yeah. And I love it. It looks like a thing out of Metroid. Yes, it's got this like kind of like coral sort of design yeah. to it. That's pretty interesting. It's very different, and they were selling it at Comic Con, and they are soon going to put it up at like the BBC shop. And I'm going to have to get one because it looks really cool. And yeah, just you know, all signs point to yes at this moment. Yes. One thing I am curious about, I'm backing up to the TARDIS thing, is that it is surprising to me. Like I'm not assuming that we would see the the TARDIS interior in any of the pre stuff because obviously they're remaking that. Um, even though, again, that TARDIS set, so beautiful. So beautiful. So beautiful. But, uh, change, we must we must embrace the change. But I do think it's interesting that in neither the, the World Cup teaser or this one, we see even the outside of the TARDIS. It's yeah. making me feel like, I wonder if that's going to be part of the thing of this season, is the like, TARDIS is a bit more absent. Because I feel like in the marketing... The TARDIS, like, again, even if you don't see the inside of it, it's always, like, very present in the show. It's even been in the logo for a while, and it's not anymore. Yeah, and and we did see the outside of the TARDIS in, like, that first, when they revealed her costume, and, like, it was there in the background. Right. You could see they had redone some of the stuff and changed. It wasn't, like, the, the hospital uh, sticker anymore and that kind of stuff. But it is interesting to me that I assumed that we would see it. And I'm curious if that is like an actual story thing that we're not seeing it in the background of shots. Or... That would be interesting because yeah. I mean the 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 last episode did end with the Doctor falling out of an exploding TARDIS yeah. down into London, and you know she cannot just like snap her fingers and have the TARDIS come to her like a dog. That's not how it works. So we'll see. Yeah, like I am because what it is making me think is that it is very possible we get a like early third Doctor thing of like the TARDIS is there enough. That, like, you know, it's broken or something that they, when we need to go to an alien world, because that is shown that, like, there's space stuff and there's time stuff still. So it's not, like, just stuck on modern-day Earth, clearly. But maybe it is, because I think that would be interesting if that is part of, like, a thing to tie the season together. 
Who knows? It, you know, Chris Chibnall was the head writer on Torchwood in its yeah. original seasons. So True. maybe they just meet up with Captain Jack Harkness and start working for Torchwood, and the show gets really weirdly sexual for a couple seasons. Yep, it's everybody's fucking and, and dying and then coming back to life and fucking again. It's weird. All right. Probably not to that last one. But anyway, that's Doctor Who. Same day, Warner Brothers in DC released the trailer for Titans. And this is the thing I'm most excited to talk about it. Sean, can I tell you the the real-time story of me seeing this? Yes, go ahead. So I woke up. I'm scrolling through the news. I think the Doctor Who thing I saw first, because I kind of woke up late on whatever day this was. I see that and it's great. And then I see people tweeting something about, fuck Batman. I'm like, (laughs) what? What's going on? They're like, this trailer is so weird. I'm like, what are they talking about? I see a video link. So I click on the video link. I have no information. And I did not know this show was happening. To be clear, I'm pretty up on things. I had no idea this was a thing that they were making. And so I see the trailer. I watch the first minute. I get up to the point where Nightwing murders a bunch of guys and then curb stomps one of them and goes, fuck Batman. And I backed out thinking... Okay, this is a parody. This is a fan parody. This is like a funnier die video. This is, or it's like some 15 year old wanted to make something really gritty because it also looks cheap as fuck. Yeah. And I'm just like, this isn't real. And I back out and I'm like, oh, this is an actual show DC is making to launch their own DC streaming service with. And this is their flagship show. It's a Teen Titans reboot just called Titans. And it includes the line, fuck Batman. Who lost their goddamn mind, and why do they get to make a TV show? Yeah, so now I will relate. My experience with it was, I was aware that they were making the show, but aware in a very vague sense. Because I had seen at some point, I think on Twitter, must have been on Twitter, because I have no idea where the fuck else I would have seen this, of just like pictures of when they like revealed the costumes or something. It's like... Oh, they're making a Titans. It's like, I guess that Robin costume is fine for a, like, you know, a lot of the costumes on, like, the CW shows and stuff. Like, hey, look fine. You know, it's not, like, the most amazing costumes ever. But it's like, hey, Robin's going to be in something. It's like, oh, they're making a Teen Titans live-action TV show. Okay. And, you know, I'm not super interested in the live-action superhero shows, even the ones that that I assume are good, like Supergirl and stuff. It's just, the, the, like, it doesn't grab me as a concept. I would be much more interested in... For instance, they, one thing they showed at this Comic-Con that I'm interested in is Season 3 of Young Justice, which is a cartoon set in the DC stuff. And that I like the cartoon stuff, because it fits superheroes better. The live-action TV shows always feel very limited to me in terms of what they can show and what they can do. So I was like, I'm never probably going to watch this, but whatever, it's going to have Robin. Okay, sure, make your fucking Titans, Teen Titans show. Um, but I am also a huge fan of the Teen Titans cartoon from the early 2000s, which is a great cartoon. Uh, just, just utterly fantastic. And so it was like vaguely on my radar. And then Comic-Con happens and I see, kind of like you, I just saw some buzz. I didn't see the fuck Batman line yet, which is critical. I didn't know that that happened. All I saw before I was like, oh, I should check out what this trailer is, is people being like, oh, that trailer for Titans was bad. And it was like, and I just got that big sense of like, ah, oh, I was like violent and bad. I'm like, oh, what? Oh, okay, I guess I'll watch this. And saw like two tweets about it. Realized, oh, I should just watch whatever it is. Then started watching the trailer. And then immediately the trailer sets off massive warning bells by starting with an 18 plus thing on it of like, like warning, this is like mature content. You know, TV, your viewer discretion advised basically. It's already, it's a Teen Titans show, right? Like that's, why would they have to have like a mature TV warning on it? Like it's not fucking Game of Thrones, it's Teen Titans, guys. Um, even if they're calling it Titans, it's Teen Titans. Uh, and so then the trailer starts and it's the first 
30 to 40 seconds of the trailer is fine. You know, it's like there's Raven and she's mumbling about some shit. And then you see Robin, like like Dick Grayson, Robin. And it's very spe- – because this is important. is very specifically Dick Grayson, Robin, who's the original Robin because they do the whole like flying trapeze, the flying Grayson's thing. That's, his backstory is that his parents were trapeze artists that died tragically and then Batman – abducts him and takes him in or whatever however you want to interpret it depending on the comic you're reading it's all-star batman robin he abducts him and then locks him in the basement and makes him eat rats to live um if you're reading a same comic book he just sort of adopts him as an actual child through like normal adoption needs uh (laughs) anyways so yeah so but so it's like okay that's dick grayson robin there's raven raven seems like they're not calling them robin or raven though no they they never say those words but that's i know what the characters are it is i think their version of Raven is very, like, overly emotional, which is a weird thing because her character is very specifically, her emotions are part of what controls her powers. And if she gets overly emotional, she loses control of her powers. So she's like this emo goth girl who can never, like, express herself too much or things go nuts. And so I was like, that's, I don't know, that kind of like, but that was all that, like, the very beginning of the trailer is like, well, this is, like, obviously not great, but I haven't seen a trailer for any of these live action TV superhero shows that I thought that was a great trailer for a TV show. I was like, ah, that's fine. I didn't know why everyone was so up in arms. And then you hit the point, like, maybe it's like 40 seconds in is when you get the shot of Robin throwing the R thing into, like, a wood plank in a very aggressive way that's like, that's a very silly-looking shot. I don't know. Okay, whatever. Robin throwing his stupid R thing. I I like when they look like little birds, but whatever. Um, And then you get Robin... In his, you said Nightwing earlier. He's Robin right now. I, he, I'm sorry. He, he becomes Nightwing, I think, at some point in the show is what I think the pitch is going to be. Because that's kind of how Teen Titans, the comic book, worked. But Robin lands on a car, and there's a bunch of thugs in this, like, foggy alley in, in fucking Gotham. Because Gotham's city streets are always covered in to fog. To be clear, in Vancouver. It, yes, in Vancouver. But, like, in the setting, I assume, it's supposed to be Gotham. And then there's a bunch of thugs, and they're like... Hey, where's Batman? And then you get this very bad, really quickly edited series of shots where Robin um, slits a dude's throat open with his R thing, which is, if you're trying to make it dark and edgy and violent, having Robin use his little R insignia to cut dude's throats up is a very funny choice to make. Um, and then he, like, grabs a dude's gun, spins it around, shoots, like, five people in the head, and then he does... I've seen people mostly describe it as a curb stomp, but what I would describe it as is because, like, yes, the guy is on the, like, laying flat on the ground and Robin kills him by stepping on him, but it's not like, you know, American History X or something, it's like stomping his head into the ground. It's like he breaks his neck by stepping on his chin and his head twists. Like, watch that shot again, because it is fucking hilarious that, like... There is no way this... I don't understand physically how he has killed this person. If you played that shot and didn't have the crunch sound effect on it, you would assume that nothing bad happened to the person. (laughs) Because you can barely even register that the guy got his head stepped on. Right? Yeah, and then you get the piece de resistance of this, like, pretty horrifying sequence of Robin just murdering about six or seven people in the middle of this alley. And it zooms up in on Robin's face and he just goes, Fuck Batman! And that's when I had to pause because I literally, I was alone in my basement and I laughed out loud for like five minutes in a hysterical <laughs> fit I haven't experienced in years. It was like a, like a slow, like, I can't believe they did this. Just ascending into like basically Mark Hamill Joker territories and me <laughs> cackling out loud to myself because 
Holy shit, Jonathan. It doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the trailer. The rest of it still looks bad. Their design for Starfire is weird, and she looks like a prostitute from Grand Theft Auto, and I don't know why they designed her like that. Um, she's supposed to be like an orange alien. I don't know. Um, and yeah, the rest of it just like like Beast Boy is wearing a fucking sports jacket, and it's weird. The rest of it doesn't look good. But that fucking middle bit, that little middle bit is the most beautifully stupid fucking thing I have ever seen, maybe ever in the history of, like, superhero stuff. It is so up there in terms of just crystallizing everything that is wrong about the the DC's, like, live-action approach to things. Of, like, Suicide Squad, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Justice League, all that dumb shit... Just, like, made pure in one, like, small sequence in one line of fuck Batman. Of their just utter inability to understand the appeal of these characters. The appeal of the concept of superheroes. The idea of, like, joy and levity as a, like, tone option. And and the ability, like, inability to have this, like, really clear love and affection for the source material. Which is the thing that I think stings the hardest in many ways and is also... The most baffling is it is still so clear that everybody involved in the production of these things is utterly embarrassed to be there. Is embarrassed about the source material, embarrassed about comic books, embarrassed about superheroes as a concept, embarrassed that Batman has a sidekick named Robin, and embarrassed that they have to make any of this shit, and embarrassed that the thing is called Teen Titans, because Teen Titans sounds dumb and goofy, so let's call it Titans, because that's, Titans is really cool and guttural and ugh, and manly and Titans. It's like, how, you can't make something good starting from the premise of you don't like what it is. You can't create a creative project from like a source of hate and make it something that people want to fucking see. And that's the problem with all this DC shit. Zack Snyder hates fucking Superman. Zack Snyder hates Batman too, but he just doesn't actually know what Batman is, so he thinks Batman's a fascist superhero, and, and some interpretations of him have been, and those are all the shitty versions of Batman. But he hates those versions of Batman. You know, these people hate these characters, hate this concept, hate comic books, hate superheroes, don't want to be doing any of this shit. They're embarrassed by all of it, and yet they liked it when they were kids, are embarrassed that they liked it when they were kids, and that they can't fucking escape it because they liked it when they were kids. I can't do much better than that, Sean, but I do have a couple of uh, thoughts to go along with this. Okay. I want to know why all these studios, and this will come back in at the end with the James Gunn thing. Yeah. Why all these big corporations like Warner Brothers, DC, Disney, think the audience that they have to cater to most is guys who masturbate to Frank Miller comics and then go harass women online. Mm -hmm. Because that is the only audience Titans is made for. Like, let's be fucking clear. If you are a 15-year-old in your basement or a 30-year-old who pretends he's 15 and is still living in his basement and reads the Frank Miller All-Star Batman and Robin and gets to the part where he says, I'm the goddamn Batman and then comes really hard yeah. and then you go and bitch at women online about it or something else, that is who Titans is for. That is the only person Titans is for on Earth. That kind of person. That kind of person does not have enough money to make that profitable. And yeah. we've seen that again and again and again and again. And yet, it is the demographic that these studios continue to think that's who they have to cater for. They have to hire and fire people based on it. They have to make their shitty fuck Batman Robin based on it. And they have to make bad $300 million movies based on it. 
And it is baffling. And everything you said about loving the material is absolutely right. Because the one good DC movie is Wonder Woman, made by the one person, Patty Jenkins, who seemed to like the character she was assigned, you know? Or Gal Gadot, who loves, I think, clearly has passion for the character of Diana Prince and Wonder Woman. So, yeah, like, it's ridiculous. It is the absolute, like, peak of the curve of stupid, gritty superhero shit at least I hope it's the peak, because that means we get to come down after this. I mean, nobody is going to watch this fucking show. No! Because also, like, because the other thing is you have this built-in audience. And this was another thing that, that baffled me about Justice League, the new 52 comic book that then is, like, a large basis for the Justice League movie when they brought Cyborg in as being, like, this big Justice League character, is you have a massive audience of people like me who grew up loving that Teen Titans cartoon that was popular when I was, like, 12 or 13. Like, which was the perfect age to watch that show because Teen Titans is for preteens. Like that, like right, you're about to be a teenager. Like that's the 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 sweet spot for Teen Titans because those are the people that are most invested in the idea of being a teenage superhero because they're not a teenager yet and they want to be a teenager, right? Like that's that's the fucking sweet spot for Teen Titans. And you have all these people like me that grew up loving that that TV show. That's how I know the characters. I know there's a bunch of people that love the comic books because the comic books are really good. I haven't read the Teen Titans comics personally. But that cartoon is my basis and it has a huge like mainstream appeal that is out there. There are millions of fucking people that watch that cartoon. It was extremely successful. Um, and, and I think there is a validity to saying let's do Teen Titans and have it deal with like more mature adult themes. Like, fine. It, but it is all... Murder is not a mature adult theme. Exactly. I want yes. to stress that. But that's clearly their idea is yes. let's make the adult Teen Titans, which is a weird sentence, but let's let's make the mature, like, whatever Teen Titans is the only thing I can think of that gets you somehow to that point of, like, you don't start with let's make fun Teen Titans for kids and then end up with fuck Batman. <laughs> you have to start with let's make Teen Titans for an adult audience and then you end up with fuck Batman because you're a very incompetent person. Um, but, yeah, like, the thing is that that... If you're just talking about, like, dark and gritty and mature themes, like, one, I think you can make it slightly more adult and not necessarily for a kid audience, and it works because you're hitting my demographic or people my age that even don't necessarily pay that much attention to it, but remember watching that show when they were a kid and having one that is maybe updated to their media taste if they don't like cartoons anymore... That's fine, but that's not what they've done. Mature adult Teen Titans would be Raven dealing with student loan debt. <laughs> yes, you know what exactly. I mean. Like, but like, also the other thing is that cartoon dealt with like serious themes and could be pretty dark. Like, Dude. there there are whole arcs of that show that are basically about like metaphorical like parent abuse and. I mean, there's, like, one of the first arcs in that show is Robin basically ends up doing a, like, Departed-style undercover cop thing with with uh, Deathstroke and betrays his teammates to, like, get, uh, like, with Deathstroke so he can figure out what the fuck he's doing. And then it's like, have you betrayed us? Have you not? Like, where do your loyalties lie? It's just, like, a dark, mature storyline that's not for fucking five-year-olds. And it's like, that works. It doesn't, so, you don't have to have him, like, murder people and say fuck Batman to do that. Here's the other piece of this that I want to talk about, Sean. Which okay. is that the corporate strategy of this in terms of a synergy thing makes, like, negative sense to me. Because you know what's coming out in five days from this recording, Sean? Mm-hmm. Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Yes. The movie version of Teen Titans Go, which is the current um, kids cartoon on Cartoon Network, which yeah. is also which, acclaimed. Which, and Yeah, which is a like spin-off, like, very comedy-focused version yes. of Teen Titans. But I'll say, I saw the trailer for that a couple of weeks ago, and I forget what movie it was with, but I saw the trailer, and I was laughing my ass off yeah. in the theater. It looks really... I kind of want to see it. It looks silly and irreverent and fun, 
and it's for kids, but also, like, I think adults could enjoy it. And why? Why are you in the internet age where someone will type in Teen Titans to look up the showtimes for their child could instead see the YouTube, you know, ad for Titans that has the line, fuck Batman, and a murder orgy in it? Yeah. What are you doing as a company that you would make those at the same time and have them out the same week? What the fuck are you doing? It's the weirdest shit. And even then, like, like this is... Not really connected to the CW stuff, but it's shot in Vancouver and it kind of looks like the CW stuff. But the CW stuff is also light and kind of funny and it's like it can get kind of melodramatic, but it's not dark in this way. So, like, there's no synergy there either. You know, Melissa Benoist's Supergirl is not snapping people's necks and going, fuck Superman. Superman. Yeah. Like... What are you doing? Like, Warner Brothers has... And we're going to talk about this with their fucking awful trailers later. They have lost their goddamn minds as a company. They are just throwing shit at the wall to see what will stick. And I, I just feel like every day, someone probably walks into that Warner Brothers office with a plan, opens Deadline, reads about some new Disney acquisition, shits their pants, and then goes feral trying to figure out what they should make next. Because they have no plan for anything, and it's hilarious. Yeah, they're like sitting on this gold mine of intellectual property and just no, no clear, coherent means or plan of executing on any of it. Because, like, one thing I do, think of 10 Titans Go, one thing I encourage people to look out, because it's, it's just, a, like, an official clip on the Cartoon Network YouTube, is just like Titan, Teen Titans Go serious into YouTube, and there's a clip from the show that I think they did it originally to kind of poke fun um, in a more good-natured way at Young Justice, which was a, like, kind of darker, more mature cartoon with, like, you know, a different art style and everything. And to kind of poke fun good-naturedly at that show, they made this whole parody where, like, the, the Teen Titans crew goes over the top and they have like this very like macho almost like 80s cartoon inspired like he-man-esque thing and and robin or raven has like a uh like ridiculous mouth and robin has a five o'clock shadow and beast boy can't smile and it's all this and they just like it's very funny and it is really funny to see like three or four years ago that teen titans go made the pitch perfect parody of their own live action tv show interpretation before they knew that before anybody even thought that that would be something that would be made Here's the other thing I love. The Teen Titans go to the movies thing that's coming out. Yeah. The villain is Deathstroke. He's voiced by Will Arnett, and they're making a bunch of Deathstroke jokes about how he looks like Deadpool. This is six months after Justice League came out and has a post credit scene introducing Deathstroke deadly seriously. Right. There are, like, five different divisions that are not having any conversations, and it is the... I'm not, like, a business major or anything, but it's a bad fucking strategy, and it's baffling. Yeah. At least some of it's good. Whatever. Let's move on. Fuck Titans. Sean, this might, I'm wondering how excited you are at this announcement. Uh, we got a really surprising Star Wars oh, announcement. Man. They are bringing back Clone Wars. Oh, man. They had a three-minute trailer that was epic as fuck. It's so good. It's going to be a 12-episode miniseries with the original crew in place to conclude the series that was basically canceled when Disney acquired uh, Lucasfilm. They did do some extra episodes for Netflix, but they did not conclude the story. So they are finishing it. It's going to be on whatever this Disney streaming service is when that starts, but I assume it'll come out in other places too. Sean, you've been asking for this for a long time. Did you think there was even a 1% chance it would ever happen? No. Like, if I was so shocked. And, and it was it was such an up and down experience. Or down and up, I should say. Because, like, the way I saw that news was, I, like, with doing the Titans thing, saw the Titans trailer, and was like, oh my fucking god. Like, 
you know, had to go get some, like, tissues to wipe the tears from the corner of my eyes because of how fucking funny that shit was. And then I look over at the internet again, and it's like, you know, it's like the scene in fucking Pulp Fiction where they open up the brief- briefcase and the light shines, the golden light shines out. It's like, the internet, something good happened on the internet for once in our lifetime. Um... And it was like, wait, what? They're bringing Star Wars The Clone Wars back? What the fuck? And click the, the YouTube link, watch the trailer. It is such a perfect trailer because it starts with like a super tight zoom in on Rex the Clone Trooper's helmet and like his black visor. And you just get all these voice clips from the Clone Troopers throughout, like from throughout the entire series. And then it's that slow zoom out from all the clone helmets, like, lined up. It's like, this is such a good trailer. And then the the helmets explode, and it, like, fades to black. And I thought, oh, that's going to be, that was a great teaser. And then it comes back up again when the music swells, and you follow the fucking gunship down, and Anakin's there, and he's got a new design, and, like... Then you cut to them being on the ship, and it's Anakin and Obi-Wan, and then they Anakin says something like, what's going on, General? And then he turns and he sees something in his eyes wide, and you're like, oh, fuck. And then you cut, and then Ahsoka's there. It's like, oh, my fucking God. What a perfect trailer, beat to beat, to announce something that fans have been so desperate for. Because, like, not only did Star Wars The Clone Wars get canceled, but it got canceled, like, right at its peak is what it always felt like of they were really close to tying things pretty closely to where Revenge of the Sith starts and they just started in season six which is like the sort of aborted season they had where they finished the first half of it and then during production they were canceled so that first half is the they kind of like cleaned those up and that's what's on Netflix um and and there are storylines in there about Yoda kind of like starting to contemplate like the existence of the of, of Darth Sidious, the the Emperor, basically like around the outside, and that's a great episode. There's a whole storyline in there about a clone that has Order sixty six, like basically executed prematurely, and like so. There's stuff of them like kind of like getting there, and you see like the horizons of the tragedy that's going to happen to all these characters, and so it's just like oh my god, like they got like they've got so close, and this just got nipped right at the end. And so I know that there were more stories than than the 12 episodes that they're bringing here with this that they wanted to do. But just having closure at all and being able to have Ahsoka come back and, like, like have, like, full closure on her relationship with Anakin, which I think is really important because that was left a bit in the air. Like, all of that is so huge to me that it's, like... And it's, it's such a smart move from Disney. Of, of I don't know when this decision got made, but there's like a with the Star Wars brand in the lurch with like different groups of of people, you know, fans and stuff like that relating to the like tempestuous reaction to the Last Jedi. I don't know the fucking word to use. Um, we are pro Last Jedi on this podcast, but there are there are people on the internet that do not like the Last Jedi. I don't know if you know that, Jonathan. You don't say. Yeah. So there's there's those people, and then obviously Solo bombed at the the box office and all that, and kind of like fucked up a lot of their plans for the spinoff movie. So Disney has had a little bit of a hard time with Star Wars in the last two years or so, and this is like the perfect announcement for them because there is no Star Wars fan that has seen the Star Wars of the Clone Wars and does not love it. Like yeah. it, it is that like great unifier of Star Wars fans. You know what I think it is, and why this happened. 
they they are they, so they've got this big Disney streaming service they want to launch, which. Yeah. Honestly, I think, like, normally one company does a streaming service. I would say that's that's overkill, but Disney, I think, has the goods. Yeah, you got Star Wars and Marvel, you can fucking pull it off. Yeah, yeah. And, and their entire fucking catalog. Like, But they still need, they need original content for people that want to come to it. And what they were planning on doing, and they, they're still planning on this, is they want to have a live-action Star Wars show. This is the one Jon Favreau is working right, on. Yeah. Uh, movie Jon Favreau. And... Um, but uh, I think given that most of their live action stuff from Disney has had mixed reaction among fans, it's had mixed success now with Solo, I think they probably realized that, okay, we could throw a lot of money at this live action show and it's not a guarantee people are going to sign up. The last, like, lost season of The Clone Wars, yeah, people are going to sign up for that. Oh, yeah. You're going to sign up they, for that, They Sean. got me. Like, yeah. they, I was just like, you did it. You found the fucking, the, the bait, you know, yes. to get me. It's so, like, and it's holy not, shit. It's not going to cost them that much. It's fucking couch cushion, couch cushion like, change for, yeah. for Disney that they can finish. Because a lot of the work, like, in terms of pre-production, I assume, was done years ago. Yeah, like, these storylines have all been written, yeah. and, like, they have animatics and storyboards and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, does any of the stuff... I'm just curious, because I have not seen all of Clone Wars and Rebels. Does any of the stuff they did with, like, Ahsoka and Vader in Rebels preclude anything they could do at the end with Clone Wars, do you think? No. Okay. No. Yeah. Like, yeah. like because I think they basically made Star Wars Rebels with all the stuff that they did with Clone Wars that never got finished as, like, in their head... Is their headcanon? Yeah. yeah. But like, which is a... When you use headcanon for the people that actually make and write the show, it's a slightly different than my version of headcanon, right? Where, yeah. you know, in my version of headcanon, I don't know, like, Obi-Wan and Ahsoka, like, went off and had, like, a secret love baby or something. I don't know. There's a romantic chemistry that they never touch on in the show. Um, well, the 12 new episodes, Sean. 12 new episodes. Who knows? Maybe my headcanon is their headcanon. And this is going to be about the Battle of Mandalore, right? With Darth yes. Vader or yeah, Darth Maul. Darth Maul, yeah. So that will conclude some of the, like the other hanging stuff because a lot of the latter seasons deal with stuff revolving around Mandalore, which is also a setting that's important in Star Wars Rebels. So, yeah, this is cool. I'm gonna have to it's catch so up cool. on this show, Sean. Yes. It's good. It's Star Wars: The Clone Wars is good. I'm so excited, and it is that like particularly when they cut to that sweeping shot of the the clone gunship coming down and Anakin being in that hangar. There's something about that shot that very visually feels like that Star Wars the Clone Wars because because while Clone Wars and Rebels have mostly the same team working on it they are like pretty different aesthetically and Rebels is a much more kind of like personal like family group t- show you know it's about this like core crew of this this ship and so it's a bit more not to like say it as like a negative or anything but it's a bit more TVE you know in terms of his direct even in style. it's like like uh, Clone Wars is done in widescreen yes exactly and so that was just like uh, everything about the style of it Clone Wars is in widescreen the story is this big sweeping war epic that has like 50 main characters across the whole show and they like you know each episode basically focuses on different characters a lot of the time and so that translates a lot into the visual style and I thought it was very impressive that even though that show has been off the air for like five plus years that immediately it was like that is a shot from Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Like that registers so clearly, clearly to me. Even though they've changed some of the art style, they've changed the character models. Obviously, um, that stuff. It just it was so perfect. I did think it was weird that one scene where Anakin murdered all the Wookies and then went fuck Yoda. That was bizarre. That was a little out left field. That was, but I assume I assume that's a dream sequence. Okay. okay. In a way that in the Titans one, there have been people I saw on the internet trying to convince themselves that's a dream sequence. What? That's not a fucking dream sequence. <laughs> all of DC, these, all the live action stuff is murder boners. That's all it yeah. is. Not dream murder boners. It's real. Well, I've got a Star Wars boner, Jonathan, and it's for Star Wars: The Clone Wars. TMI. And you shouldn't touch it because it will cut your hands off. 
Whoa, this it's, got... It's a lightsaber. Okay. Is where but, I'm trying to go with it. We also got a trailer, Sean, at Comic-Con for Dragon Ball Super Broly, uh, which we talked about last week on the show because it was announced as the new Broly movie, and we were talking about how what an interesting idea that was. And at the Funimation Comic-Con panel, they premiered the trailer for this in both Japanese subtitled and English dubbed, which has to be unprecedented in the history <laughs> of anime, that a major anime movie not only got its trailer premiere at American San Diego Comic-Con, but was already dubbed like they got Sean Schemmel and everyone to just dub these trailer lines. Yeah. It's crazy. The trailer is, in English or Japanese, fucking fantastic. It's so gorgeous, Jonathan. It looks oh so my good. Because you know what they've also done that I was struck by? It's not the exact same animation style as the recent movies or Super. No. It looks like the manga. Yeah. It's more of Toriyama's manga design, which I fucking love. They've, I've always, I always love it when they do that a little more. Like, some of the video games do it here and there. Like, um... The, the Dragon Ball Fighters definitely does yeah. with its character models. Um, you know, we did get some story details. Clearly, they are treating Broly as an entirely new character. Yeah. Fresh start for Broly, which we said was like the only thing we could see, but it was still an open question until we saw some footage. Uh, it's gorgeous. It has full-on, like, match-up cards of, like, Frieza versus Broly, Vegeta versus Broly, Goku versus Broly, and, yeah, like, look, I've never been hyped for a Broly thing before. That trailer got me hyped. It's so good, yeah. It is, it's, I think it's probably the most gorgeous, like, animated Dragon Ball thing I've seen. Like, it, it definitely, it hits a good balance between, it, like, the very personal hand-animated stuff that the old stuff feels like and the obviously more, like, technically advanced, um, more digital kind of stuff that Dragon Ball Super, particularly, like, if you get to the end of Turn of the Power and some of the shit they do in that, like, it is unbelievable, the quality of the animation there for a TV show. But this, it... Like you said, it has, it feels more like the manga. It feels more fluid. It's like the characters feel like kind of slender or something in a way that's like, yeah, it's really cool. Well, it almost looks like a mix between, because Toriyama's art style also changed over the years, yeah. and that's part of it. Like, he started very rounded and became more angular over time. This is almost going back to like a more rounded sort of thing, which he has not favored a ton in his character designs recently, but you got a little bit of that like in Jocko, I think, a little bit in like his Super Saiyan God design. But yeah, like the 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 most recent movies, Resurrection F and Battle of Gods, are really just kind of straight continuations of the Z art style. Yeah. Um, the only one I would compare to this is the have you ever seen the Jump Anime Fest special? Yeah. From 08, I think. That one looks very manga esque. Yeah. This looks kinda like that. But that was like a TV sort of thing. So like yeah, this, this has is, the this has the budget and the time, you know, you can feel man, it. Man, it looks good. I cannot wait. It's coming out in January here, December in Japan. Motherfucker, they 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 kinda won Comic Con with that one, except a lot of people won Comic Con because Clone Wars and Doctor Who were also there. Yeah, it was yeah, they, it was a good way to sort of wash the taste of the Titans out of your mouth to be like, fucking Doctor Who's here, and Clone Wars is coming back, holy shit, and Dragon Ball Super Broly looks goddamn amazing. Yeah. I'm, I need to watch that trailer again. So good. It's pretty good. All right. Then Warner Brothers had a day where they had their trailer panel. Yep. And I just want to the trailers were up and down. But it is weird to have a year where your four trailers for four movies called Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, Shazam, Aquaman, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That is a weird hodgepodge of movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. And even like your two superhero movies in there are like weird and very different. So let's talk about these. Okay. Um, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. I don't know what to say at this point, guys. Other than Johnny Depp, it looks good. Like, yeah. it, I think it's got really interesting visuals. It looks like, you know, uh, David Yates, who directs these movies, you know, he had a very visually adventurous style in his Harry Potter films. 
and then pared that down a lot. Fantastic Beasts is a more traditional-looking movie, but they were also starting over. But with this one, it feels like he's really pushing it harder, and that's interesting to me. It's got some really cool monster designs and stuff. It's got some good moments. But there's just this giant blinking, you know, red warning light in the middle of this movie named Johnny Depp. And he looks stupid. He doesn't look like a Harry Potter character. He looks like an awful, you know, Tim Burton reject. Johnny Depp looks bored to be there, as he always is these days. You know, he was brought out on stage at Comic-Con to raucous applause while Amber Heard, the wife he beat, was having to stand backstage waiting for her time on stage for Aquaman, which is a disgusting fucking thing for Warner Brothers to have done. Yeah. Um, I don't don't know what to say. I, I really do think, like... There's, they can't fix the Johnny Depp thing anymore. Like, they've they've got, come way too far. They had all the information day one that they have now, and they've chosen to do nothing with it. They are all putting their fingers in their ears. Uh, it's it's weird. And I don't... You know, it seems like they want this to be an ongoing franchise, this Harry Potter spinoff, where I assume Grindelwald does not die in this movie, which means they probably want Johnny Depp for multiple movies, but Johnny Depp could very well sink Harry Potter this year. Mm-hmm. And they've just decided they have tied themselves to the Johnny Depp mast, and they are going down with the ship. Yeah, they are holding on for dear life. I don't... I really don't get it. Because there has not been any commercial evidence of Johnny Depp selling a movie in about a decade. Mm-hmm. The last one would have been Alice in Wonderland. Like, that's pretty much it. I don't I really don't understand it I'm disappointed in a lot of people I really like and respect like J.K. Rowling standing up for this guy uh, not just because of the wife beating stuff although that's I don't want to that's yeah. like I'm minimizing it I'm yeah. not trying to minimize it it shouldn't be minimized but like that's not the only thing either which is just that he is um, a, a nightmare to work with on set apparently these days apparently he is just you know emotionally abusive to the people he works with um he is, I think, a substance abuser again, which is not, you know, necessarily a moral failing. I'm not saying that, but you put it with the whole picture. This guy is not healthy. He is not acting well anymore, and he is not any kind of commercial boon. So they're like, You're, there's no upside for this sort of deal with the devil they're doing, and I'm just disappointed in it, you know? I yeah. don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. Because I'm with you, even though I'm not a Harry Potter guy, the, a lot of that trailer, because they don't, he doesn't come in until a little bit into that trailer, so it's the yeah. beginning of that trailer, I'm like, oh, that actually looks pretty good, and I never saw that Fantastic Beast movie, and it's like, I, I do kind of want to get around to it at some point, because I do really like, generally speaking, the David Yates directed Harry Potter movies, it's seven part one kind of got on my nerves a bit, but other than that, I liked all those movies quite a bit, and, and I also really like what I've seen of... The Eddie Redmayne character, the new main He's character. He's awesome. He seems really interesting. Um, and so it's like that stuff was kind of compelling to me. And then you have um, fuck who, who plays the, the young Dumbledore? Uh, uh, Jude Law. Jude Law, yeah. yeah. And like he's like, yeah, that's fucking cool. I'll go for that. Like I like Dumbledore. I like Jude Law. I'll, I'll watch that performance. And then, yeah, then you hear a little bit of Johnny Depp. I'm like, oh, fuck, he's in this movie. And then they cut to him and he's got the fucking hair. And it's like, why? Why? Why would you do this? Like, especially when his like the character's name is in the title of the movie, and you know he's going to be a huge part of this movie. It's like that is fucking sinks it. Like I can't. I'm not going to fucking watch this film. It's just it is this corporate blindness where you are taking one of the biggest and most durable brands in the world with Harry Potter, and you might be sinking it for a generation because yeah. you ha- can't let go of this actor who was popular a long time ago. I don't understand it. I agree with you on all of that. My one nerdy nitpick is Dumbledore's teaching defense against the dark arts in that trailer, and he was the transfiguration professor, and that's weird, and I don't get that. But other than that... Nobody knows. Everybody only knows the fucking 
dark arts thing because that was like one of the main characters of all the movies that they kept. No, that's the only class they show in the films. Yes, yeah. dark arts. They never. Well, there you go. Yeah, so that's it. But who knows? Maybe he's subbing and they can do a line about it. I'm just like J.K. Rowling. You should know better about that. You should also know better about not hiring you know spousal abusers. Yeah, but um, when one of those things is more important than the other, one of those things is much more important than the other. Let's yeah. be clear. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I, I'll see the movie, I guess, to talk about it, but I, I, I don't. I, it's hard for me to imagine a version of this where it feels good as a cohesive, ongoing whole with that gaping hole in the center. Even though there's so many other things I love, like Catherine Waterston is in this, and I love her. She was great in the first one. You've got the Jacob Kowalski character, who's really cool. It's a cool Nicholas Flamel reference at the end. That was neat as a longtime Harry Potter fan. I don't want Johnny Depp in a Harry Potter movie. I don't. No one does. No yeah. one does. Yeah. Anyway, all right, uh, Shazam! Shazam! Weird, Jonathan, you didn't turn into Zachary Levi right before my eyes, and neither did I. I did not. I thought that that would work. I thought that trailer was fucking stupid. I didn't hate that trailer. Like, I don't, it wasn't something where I think the movie is going to be good, because I don't, but there was something of like, I was so, maybe it's because I had my expectations set like, below the bottom of the basement. Like, it's just like, like my expectations were, like, on the other side of the Earth with how low they were for Shazam slash Captain Marvel. Um, and which, when I say Captain Marvel, that's like... I don't want to get to the rights... But that's, like, how I know the name of the character because that's The what, character in the comics was called Captain Marvel, then Marvel made their own Captain Marvel, and then they had to... Blah, 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 and they yes, and then Cap- DC bought the rights to the original Captain Marvel from the 1930s, which is this Captain Marvel, which we, they now call Shazam because his catchphrase is Shazam because it's, like, the wisdom of Solomon and all this shit. It's, like, it's a thing. It's, like, the speed of Hermes. I don't remember all of them. Yeah, but they and cannot just, call him Captain Marvel in this movie because Marvel is making a Captain Marvel movie with Carol Danvers. I mean, they can't even call... Well, they can they can name the character Captain Marvel, but they have given up on that. But they have not since I think like the eighties or something been able to title a comic book Captain Marvel because Marvel uh, copyrighted the Captain Marvel name for comic books for like the title, and then DC got access to the rights to the Captain Marvel character from a different comics company from like the 30s and 40s and so then they named the comic book Shazam but still kept on calling the character Captain Marvel and then the new 52 they said fuck it this is really confusing we'll just call him Shazam and then I'm like it is very confusing but now it's even more confusing for me because I will never not be able to call this character Captain Marvel which is what creates this problem on our podcast right now so here are my three problems with the trailer show okay let's see if I can remember all three uh Zachary Levi I'll start with that I like Zachary Levi as an actor. He's been kind of a douche on Twitter lately. But, um, you know, I, I was a big fan of Chuck when it was on the air. You all know that. And so I, I have fond memories of Zachary Levi from that. I think he can be very good in some contexts. This very, 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 very much looks like a movie where they wanted to hot cast The Rock. The Rock said, I want to be Black Adam in my own movie. So they just kicked him aside for that. And because they couldn't get The Rock, they got a really scrawny dude who doesn't look like a superhero who has to be in a suit that looks like they've just got fake muscles all over it. Yeah. And that looks dorky and dumb. So I don't know. Nothing against Zachary Levi, the actor here, I guess. It just he's, he's really horribly miscast. It does not seem right. Yeah. Um, and, okay, two, tied to that, this is just Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle from like six fucking months okay. ago, and that movie made a billion dollars. 
and again about like a ki- and that's why the rock thing comes up also is that it's a the kid who's like Shani and then goes into the video game and now he's a big superhero dude played by the rock or something right and they already have played with that and that movie made a billion dollars and I don't think you're going to capture the success of that with Zachary Levi as the guy the kid turns into so it feels weirdly repetitive in that way uh, oh I have four things three it looks really cheap the movie looks like it was like it looks like a 90s VHS movie I would watch or something mm-hmm. it does yeah. not look like a big budget 2000s movie so it looks cheap uh, and four, there's two kids. I know nothing about Captain Marvel, Shazam, all that. Yeah. But there's two kids in the trailer. And it starts out with this, like, cool disabled kid who's, like, got a bad leg. And I'm like, oh, he's going to turn into Shazam because then he'll be, like, superheroic. Right. You know, and that'll be an interesting that No, they make the fucking disabled kid have a best friend who can turn into a superhero. An already, like, fit kid who just gets more fit. And the poor disabled kid just has to watch his friend do that. That's just cruel. As screenwriting, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that because since I know the character, I knew who, I know who Billy Batson is because because so, the premise of Shazam slash Captain Marvel slash Shazam is you have this kid named Billy Batson who's like a good kid and he's got like a, a you know a soul of gold and when all that the kind heart all that shit and then he stumbles into a cave and a weird man is there and this part is in the trailer and I don't remember who plays. Like the sage or whatever the fuck that guy's name is. I think Shazam is, is what they call him. Again, it's weird shit. But like, I thought that performance in the trailer was really bad in a weird way. Um, but yeah, but he meets this guy who grants him all these powers that he can access when he shouts the word Shazam, which gives him all these superpowers. And basically, his superpowers are like Superman superpowers in a lot of ways. This like this character is pretty much concurrent with the creation of Superman. Like a little bit after that. Um, and so it's basically this little kid that when he shouts this magic word becomes Superman in the sense of like he becomes like this 30 year old guy and he can fly around and do all this shit and that premise I think is really strong for the character Um, they have done good things and bad things with it over the years but Captain Marvel is always a character I thought was very interesting and that was the part of the trailer I enjoyed was like this is it's such a good premise and it's such a solid premise and I think them going at it with like a light heart is so the right idea because the last time I read a, a Shazam comic book, specifically Shazam, was I tried starting the New 52 one back when that was more new. And there they did this shitty thing of making Billy Batson like this really troubled kind of punk kid. In Which this, is what they're doing in this trailer. They're kind of it, – it was way more severe in the New 52 okay. version. In the New 52 version, he was a piece of little piece of shit. It's okay. maybe how – I shouldn't say troubled punk kid is giving him too much credit. He's a little piece of shit. He was – he would have been like one of the bullies almost in the okay. trailer. In the trailer, it's like it's clear he comes from rough circumstances, but he has this like moral foundation that like is there, which I think that's the right way to do the character and not necessarily have him be – Basically that, like, golly gee whiz, guys, I sure do think that people should get along. Which is how, like, old school Billy Batson is. is He's just, like, you know, like a little lollipop. He's like, oh, you're so perfect and sweet little kid. It's like he needs to have a little bit of grit to him, like a little bit of something to make him stand out. And I think that is a good starting point for this trailer. But, yeah, I do think it's – I agree with you. It looks very cheap. I think Zachary Levi is really poorly miscast. Not in the sense I think – he like is a bad actor or anything but it is like part of the thing of Captain Marvel is he's supposed to basically look like Superman he's supposed to have like you know perfect face this big chin like huge chest and like all these muscles it's like that's the look and but he needs to then be also be able to act like this goofy kid and you need both those things and the Zachary Levi only has the goofy kid part I just figured out who it should be yeah and I am broken hearted that this is not a thing in the world 
and I'm I'm going to say it, and you're all going to be sad. So just be prepared. Okay. This should be John Hamm. Oh my God! This yes. needs to be John Hamm. Yes, because he looks like Superman. He's a stealth weirdo, and uh-huh. he can just be bizarre and act like a kid, and it would be fucking funny and awesome. And it's just it should be John Hamm. Yes. Exactly, because the problem with what they've got now is that when he turns into Captain Marvel such as Shazam, it's just like, oh, look at that goofball. Because right. it's like they, they basically cast Paul Rudd. Like it's like they're you're basically it's like a no less fan, fit Paul Rudd. Yeah, it's like a, a slightly cheaper Paul Rudd is what he feels like. I no offense, Paul. I love Paul Rudd a lot, and that's mostly where that comes from. But it is, but you yeah, you need the contrast of like impossibly handsome, super fit guy who's like this goofy kid inside. And it's like you need that contrast if that's what the character is. Well, because it's, it's not just like, you know, clearly they wanted like The Rock or something. But like the other thing they're going for here is like a big thing, like with Tom Hanks. Yes, yeah. So that's the other thing you're holding it up to. And sadly, there is only one Tom Hanks. So I don't know. It's It feels like kind of an impossible position for the actor Again, I also I think it would be a cooler story if it was the crippled kid who becomes like yeah. superpowered, and then the fit kid has to watch like the the crippled kid become superpowered, and then that'd be cool. But anyway, uh, whatever, it'll come out, it'll flop. Um, so yeah, there's know. like even if the movie's fine, which I think is is a possibility. Yeah, it's not going to make any money. No. no, no. And again, and part of that is because for a lot of people of a certain age, when I hear Shazam, all I think about is a movie about a genie played by Shaquille O'Neal. It's not called Shazam; it's called Kazam. But everyone remembers it as Shazam, and that's the yeah. It would have also been very good if they could just cast Shaquille O'Neal. It would be Go a for very, it. it would be a very different performance and movie. I'd be kind of into it though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you'd have a white kid turning into a black basketball player. Yeah. You'd have to deal yeah, with some know, things. Shaquille O'Neal's, like, acting is not his first profession, and he has a charm to him, but not maybe a range to what he can do on screen, so it would be very different. He's also, like, eight feet tall, so it would be him turning into Shazam a lot and then hitting his forehead onto, like, ceilings. All right, Aquaman. This trailer was whatever. Like, yeah. Aquaman was the most whatever trailer I've seen in a while. Yeah, it looks like... An extremely expensive, better-made version of Green Lantern. Yes, that is the exact same thing I thought. If like this basically looks like Green Lantern. Yeah, it like Aquaman. like it looks like a less inept version of Green Lantern. Like there are some impressive shots, some impressive visuals. You know, they have not CGI'd Jason Momoa's head onto a CGI body, so you know they 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 missed that particular bullet. But yeah, it's just CGI goop and. I don't need another story about a mediocre guy being told by a woman who's clearly more fit to rule that he's the one who actually has to yeah. rule, even though he doesn't want to. We've seen that enough. It'll it'll probably be okay. I don't know. James Wan is really talented. Like that's the one like tale like possibility I'm holding out for is James Wan is an extremely talented director. He directed the hell out of his Fast and Furious movie when he got that job, Furious Seven, uh, which was also the one where Paul Walker died, so there was a lot of complications there. He did very well on that. He knows how to direct this kind of movie. There are some impressive shots in there, but I don't I don't know. Aquaman is one of those characters where I genuinely don't know if there's a good movie to be made out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think Jason Momoa is a really fun actor. I don't think we've ever seen evidence he's necessarily a great, compelling, leading man. Yeah. He could be. I just don't know. And it, and it's something that's like, 
one of the weird things about the way this has worked out where Justice League comes out first is like I have no particular affection for that character from Justice League. Like I kind of forgot. He's barely in it. <laughs> he's in that movie at all. And there's something of where he comes up on screen and I'm like, oh right, I saw an entire movie where he was supposed to be one of the main characters and I remembered nothing about that performance. Um, one thing I will say that I did enjoy about the trailer, just just that it's there at all, because I didn't... This has probably been announced before and I just had no idea, is I like that Black Manta's in the trailer and he looks like Black Manta. This is like the big fucking head and like the red eye things. And he looks silly. I'm like, hey... So I feel like the people making this movie liked Black Manta, and so they put Black Manta in the movie. That's what that felt like. It was like after yeah. Titans, it was like somebody somebody wanted Black Manta to be in this movie because because. But it was one of the things where it's like I'm glad that Black Manta's there because I like Black Manta. I think it's cool that they're just doing that character. But also, it looks like this is going to have the like superhero movie thing of there's like way too much shit going on because the entire plot of the movie probably should just be. Aquaman finds out that, oh, I'm actually the secret heir to the throne of Atlantis, and my brother is on the throne right now, and he's an asshole, and so now they, like, I need to go there and, like, claim my birthright. That's a movie. That's a whole movie. And somewhere in there is Black Manta starting a war between the surface and Atlantis, and I don't know how that fits in. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's a part of the, it's kind of like when we watch the Batman v Superman trailers, and then all of a sudden Doomsday's in there, and you're like, Wait a minute. Where does how does that how is that one movie? I was like, I thought the movie is Batman. That's a whole movie is Batman fighting Superman. How is Doomsday in here? And we all saw that how that turned out. So yeah, I don't know. I, I do think Aquaman is being made by people who like the character. Like that's yes. I know that's a low bar to clear, but it's one DC has only cleared once so far. Um, you know, I think James Wan is very clearly enthused. Jason Momoa is one of the most enthusiastic people on earth. If you see him in interviews. <laughs> And that's good. Like, I don't think it's going to be Green Lantern. I don't think it's going to be Justice League. But I don't know. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious to hear more about it as we get closer to it. I'm I don't know if I need to see it. Yeah, I'm. My current plans are to skip that one unless if the reviews are really good. I was like, okay, I'll check it out. But otherwise, yeah. this is this is also this one's going to flop like a motherfucker. Yeah, like Aquaman has never been successful in like any venture no. financially. So, all right. Last trailer, and this one is cool. This is a great trailer. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yes. I'm a little, even though I knew this, I'm a little bit upset that there are now two movies called Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There's the American release of the original Godzilla, which is called Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And now there's this one, because if you have issues with trying to Google stuff and being annoyed that there are two things with the same title, you can't watch Godzilla movies, because there's like 500... Like, every Godzilla movie has the same title as the other Godzilla movie at some point. Because they all have like five titles, and half of them are the same title. Yeah, at least they didn't just call it Godzilla again, and have just our fifth movie called Godzilla. Well, they should have called it Godzilla Raids again, which was the sequel to the original Godzilla made in 1955. That would fit, because then the third one would be uh, King, King Kong, Kong vs. Godzilla, Godzilla, which exactly. they're making next yes. year. Well, they so, have to wait like ten years, though. Okay. Well, that one is coming out. Fit the timeline. That one's coming out 2020. Yes. Anyway. So this is the 2019 sequel to Gareth Edwards' 2014 Godzilla. Um, Fuck, I hadn't realized it had been that long since that movie. I think I... Yeah, it's 2014. You are definitely right. It's just... It's been a long time. It just had this flesh... Like, that's four years ago. Fuck. Yeah. So... uh, But anyway, this is the sequel. It's directed and written by Michael Dougherty. Uh, Michael Dougherty's been around forever. He wrote X2... He's done some other stuff. I think this is his directorial debut for a feature. Um, no, he's done... He did Krampus, the uh, 
Uh, the weird, like, um, Santa, horror like, Santa yeah, movie. Christmas movie. And yeah. I think he did some of that uh, horror anthology Trick or Treat. And I think yes, people like yes, that. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah, that is a good movie. Okay, so I anyway. I don't remember which one he did in that, but yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, this is his direct, big, like, you know, uh, Hollywood blockbuster debut, sort of. Uh, and it's a super impressive trailer. Yes. Uh, I think the story in it is complete gobbledygook, and I'm not sure what they're saying. But... But there are those shots of the monsters. The shot where Mothra, unf- I think it's Mothra, right? Unfurling yes. her wings. Yeah, in like the waterfall. Yeah. Oh my god. That is one of the greatest movie monster shots I've ever seen. It's, yeah, like the thing about this trailer that makes it work is like a, we have had this slow process of American Godzilla movies of like, the first one is shit. The first, like the 1996 one was terrible. Um, the third movie to be titled Just Godzilla. And then the fourth movie to be titled Just Godzilla, the 2014 one by Gareth Edwards, is a pretty good one. It's like, it's, it's basically a Godzilla movie, and it's like, you're, you basically got it. You know, they have some story issues and stuff like that, but it's a very entertaining movie. Way better than we would have ever expected from the American. Way better than what we would have expected. For and sure. also clearly made by someone who loves Godzilla and thinks yes. he's cool. And, and very talented in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. like Gareth Edwards' visual sense, even if I think he has issues as, like, from his storytelling perspective as a director which you can definitely also see in Rogue One visually like he fucking has it on lock and that's a you know a very spectacular looking Godzilla movie in 2014's Godzilla but the major piece that that one was missing was that it was a Godzilla fighting other monsters movies which is you know there are two kinds of Godzilla movies you either just have Godzilla and he's fucking shit up like Godzilla or Godzilla or Godzilla or Shin Godzilla, which are the <laughs> four Godzilla movies where there's only Godzilla and he's just fucking shit up. Or you have Godzilla fighting other monsters, which is all the other Godzilla movies. Um, and But for that, you need two things. You need Godzilla and you need another really cool monster. And the one thing that 2014's Godzilla was missing was the other really cool monster. Because they had the Mutos... Which were fine, and they're just kind they of were gray. Probably, they were above average American movie monsters. Yes, but, but it was just gray CG. Bleh, yeah, right. Above average American movie monster is well below average kaiju. Yeah, it's like really overly detailed CG mess that has no real sort of outline or silhouette or identity. Like there's no distinctive audio component, no cool roar or anything to lean on. So it's like, like you said, it was like from the standards of American giant monsters, it's like. We basically have King Kong, and that's it. <laughs> Even he's not actually, other than Skull Island, he's not that big. Um, and then all the other, and he's also just a giant ape. So, it's, you know, there wasn't a lot of work that went into that design. Um, and so, but yeah, the Mutos are better than the Cloverfield monster, but that's their only competition. It's just like, eh, whatever. This, they're just like, fuck it. There are so many great Godzilla monsters. We have the rights to use them. Let's just use them. So in this movie, you have... The, what they have shown so far is you have Godzilla, of course, which is the same design from 2014. Looks good. And then you have Mothra. In both, you have a brief shot of the larva form with with uh, Eleven from Stranger Things. And then you get a couple of shots of full Mothra right in your face. Mothra is big. and Like, that scene on the big screen is going to be so cool. Yes. Mothra's huge. It's awesome. Then you have Rodan, the giant, like, pterosaur monster. And Rodan looks fucking awesome. And they just, like... I like they have one shot in there, which is a shot that was like the shot for me that maybe like these people 100% get it is they basically quoted a shot from the original Rodan movie where Rodan flies over this Japanese town and then right after Rodan passes, everything seems fine for a second and the buildings all explode and they basically just do that shot in this trailer. It's like, okay, you guys know what you're doing. And then though you have, for me, the thing that's like, fucking yes, is you have King Ghidorah 
the the three-headed dragon that shoots lightning from its mouth, which is, like, basically King Ghidorah and Mechagodzilla are, like, the two big Godzilla enemies, you know? They're, like, they're there. They're in a bunch of movies. They're great designs. They're awesome looking. And, yeah, you have that shot early on, which looks a lot like a shot from Godzilla, Mothra, and King, Desor- King Ghidorah, Destroyal Monsters, or whatever. The giant monsters all out attack, excuse me, which uh, Ghidorah frozen, and so they kind of quote that shot a little bit. And then later you have Ghidorah fully standing up in the fog with his heads rising up. It's like, you guys have it. You, you guys know what you're doing. It's like, yes, the human side is probably going to be nonsense. There's something about this lady's like the... Nature I, is I, rising up against us. I don't know if the trailer needed a full minute of Vera Farmiga nonsensically ranting about monsters and fevers and diseases, but whatever. Yeah, it, it did. It was something. It did take me a solid like thirty seconds to understand what the fuck is your point? Like, why are you talking about vaccines and viruses and diseases and fevers? Yeah, but like, and that, but, but that part of the movie is not. If they are very clearly making a Godzilla movie where that side of the movie is not that important. It's like. That was one of the problems with 2014 Godzilla is that it didn't fully decide whether it wanted to be a Godzilla movie where that shit was not important or a Godzilla movie where that shit was important. This maybe it'll be different when we see the full the actual movie, but based on this trailer, this is going to be a movie where that shit's not that important. Like yeah. it's there to move the plot around and because it would be way too expensive to have 90 minutes of only monsters on screen, we need some humans there. Yes. Because you know, we don't have that much money. Um but yeah, I'm just, I am so excited. I thought that was a great trailer. I, I like them bringing back all those other monsters. I'm definitely stoked to see yeah. this one. I I think this is the kind of one piece of Warner Brothers' movie strategy they've been doing right, which is the 2014 uh, Godzilla is really good. I know it's got some issues, but it's a really impressive movie. Yeah. It's very passionately made. It does not look like other blockbusters. It's an interesting film. Yes. Then they did Kong Skull Island, which, have you seen that yet? Yes, I have. It's, it's very fucking good. It's so good. It was so, it's so big scale and crazy, and it's so fun in, I think, how it, what it does with the Kong character and the Skull Island world. And now they've got this one, and then next, the year after that, they're doing, I think they're calling it Godzilla vs. Kong or something. This is a different title, thank you. Yes, yes. That's, when I Google be, that, King Kong vs. Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Kong are two different titles. Yeah, and so that feels like a natural, this is more like the Marvel model of let's test the waters and make some movies, and if it works, we'll do a team-up. So, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's something where it feels like a lot of like the big producers at WB probably don't even realize they're actually making this movie. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of what it looks like to me. But yeah, they have been very quietly making these giant monster movies, and they've been very good. And and I'm yeah, I'm very excited for this. Yeah, it's gonna be good. All right, uh, final thing from Comic Con, which is this has been long anticipated, but Batman the animated series, the best version of Batman, yes, got its complete series Blu-ray announcement. Something we thought might never happen, but they did test the waters about a year ago with Mask of the Phantasm on Blu-ray, and they kind of even said back then if it sold enough, maybe Warner Brothers would let them do the whole series. It did, yep. thank God. Uh, so they are doing, they have done the entire Batman the animated series. Plus, it looks like the the new adventure. Of Batman and Robin, which was basically the fourth season of that show with yeah. a different art style, which coincided with the Superman show that we need on Blu-ray next. Yes, um, that show's also very. But good. anyway, um, yes. Yeah, so, so they're doing all of that. They've remastered all of it. 
they had a whole panel about this at Comic-Con. The set is coming October 16th. The deluxe set comes with cool book-style packaging, so each disc has its own detailed and illustrated page. The set includes both movies as well. You'll get Mask of the Phantasm and Sub-Zero, which is awesome. Uh, Plus three Funko Pop figures of Batman, Harley, and Joker, if you care. Uh, I I wish that they would allow you to just get that set without the Funko Pops and drop, like, five bucks off of it. Yeah, and then I think there's also an art book... Uh, Speaking of the price, though, it's only priced at one twelve ninety nine on Amazon, which I would say is already pretty low for yes, something for, that yeah. detailed. This is four seasons, like yeah, it's like it's, over hundred episodes. Yeah, it's going to be mini discs, I assume, and that's the starting price. It will come down on Amazon. Yeah. So yeah, I can't fucking wait for this. Batman the Animated Series has one of the just absolute coolest aesthetics of mm-hmm. any animated project ever, particularly in American animation. And to finally have it get the tender love and care it deserves. Because we talked about this when Mask of the Phantasm came out on Blu-ray. The way Batman was made, like, it's really hard to present well. Because it was all animated on black paper and then captured onto film. Which just meant that there's a lot of, like, uh, dirt in the image. And it was hard. Like, any dirt shows up on the black paper and it's kind of hard to get away. And it's degraded over time. And it was, you know, probably shot in standard definition and all this stuff. So... Going back and giving it the tender love and care it deserves is not easy, but I'm glad they have done it, and I'm glad this series will exist in that form. And I am also just excited to rewatch it again because mm-hmm. some of the like stills they put out from the panel were from uh, my favorite episode, Almost Got Him. Yeah, and I was just like, I can't wait, I can't, I can't wait. Yeah, it's a great it. show. I watched it all the way through, probably like 2012. So it's yeah. been a while for me. Yeah, and, and it is like that. Because it, when they announced it, I was like, God, that looks awesome. And then I thought, but it's going to be like 200. It was like when, when Criterion announced the Bergman collection. I'm like, that looks awesome. I would love to get that because I've only seen a couple of his movies, like Seventh Seal. And, and you know, I like that a lot. And I've loved to watch the rest of his movies. And it's like, oh, God, this is like 200 plus dollars. It's like, that's so much money. I can't do that right now. Yeah, and, and about 100 bucks is a very reasonable price for what they're asking for. So Oh, yeah. They're giving you a lot. Even if they took the Funko Pops out. I don't. I think some people are, are uh, overestimating how much the Funko Pops probably actually cost. No, I, I mean, especially <laughs> since they're mass-producing those right. things. Like, that's like dirt because yeah. they're made out of dirt and they're worth dirt and you should just fucking throw them in the garbage. At least they're not stuff. doing a mobile game Batman Funko Pop along with it. That could already be a thing. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, maybe we'll get to talk about Batman the Animated Series later this year. Sure, that'd be yeah. pretty fun. All right, that's all the Comic Con stuff. But concurrent with Comic Con, oh. Sean, yeah, this is this is going to be a thing. Yes, this is a topic. I have this on the outline as the James Gunn debacle. So let me tell the story. Okay. This week, uh, Disney fired director writer director James Gunn from the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, and actually went further and blacklisted him from any and all future Disney productions. They did this because of a concerted campaign um, by some right-wing trolls, uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit, about some tweets that were not necessarily unearthed, but were brought back to life over the last couple weeks um, by right-wingers who were upset with James Gunn's uh, openly liberal positions on Twitter against Donald Trump, which I would say is a very reasonable position to hold, but whatever. Um, And these these tweets are about 10 years old, uh, and at that time, James Gunn was basically a Twitter troll. He said very, very crass, dirty, awful things online. He was not necessarily harassing people, but he was tweeting out jokes that were... In bad taste would be a very light way to say it. Yeah. They are... To say that, like, 
they're so bad that I would not want to repeat I don't, them on air and like quote them. You know, like yeah. that's how bad it is. Is I don't want to say it out loud. There are jokes about things like rape and pedophilia and things that you should not be joking about, let alone just be talking about so casually. Yeah, um, they were obviously meant to get a rise out of people. Um, you know, James Gunn comes out of and a lot of people don't know this. The Trauma Factory. Mm-hmm. Trauma is an American studio that makes really like shitty B movies that are like their whole thing is that they're like really really crass and like gross and like you know filled with like piss and shit and stuff and that's kind of the tradition James Gunn comes out of he's very much a trauma guy early in his career this was all pre-Disney pre-Guardians of the Galaxy stuff so awful tweets the full context matters here though which is that we everyone maybe not everyone but people knew about all of that when he was hired for Guardians of the Galaxy back in like 2012 and that was litigated back then. He has apologized profusely for it multiple times over the years. He has given interviews where he has talked about it very frankly. Ever since he's been working with Disney, he has never been anything less than conciliatory about this. Those tweets are 100% indefensible, and I think that's important to say. Yeah. But also the first person to say that is James Gunn. So, like, you know, at a certain point, that's worth thinking about. Uh, Disney knew about all this. I assume they talked to him about this. He has not done anything like that while working for Disney. Um, and, yeah, uh, Disney fired him this week because of those tweets. And, actually, that's the wrong thing to say. They didn't fire him because of those tweets. They fired him yes, because... That, yes, you were right. That is the wrong thing to say. They fired him because um, a group of right-wing trolls led by a guy named Mike Cernovich, who is basically a gamer gator. That's what he kind of comes out of. Um, and is a horrible, horrible human being, uh, leading other horrible human beings. They led a uh, focused smear campaign, basically, where they did use James Gunn act- Gunn's actual tweets. Like, they did not make up things he'd said. But they also, like, removed context, and they tried... To, like, there are things where, like, he would say something, like, really naughty in the tweet and have a link, but the link would be, like, a Rickroll, and that's what James Gunn would do. And uh, Mike Cernovich and his people were replacing it with, like, oh, he was linking to child porn and things like that, and trying to say, like, he was an actual pedophile because of all this. Uh, And Disney basically caved into that right-wing pressure and fired him because of this. Um, Again, if Disney wanted to fire him because of the tweets, they could have done that at any point in the last six years that they've been had a working relationship with him. Uh, and they did not. This is not about the tweets. And I think that's the thing that, like, there are kind of two conversations going on here. You yeah. can have the conversation about James Gunn's past behavior on Twitter and whether or not that was okay. And the thing is, I think everyone on Earth is in agreement that it wasn't. James Gunn is in agreement with you yeah. on that. And he has been trying to be better for a very long time. And people in his life will attest to that. This is not a Me Too situation where people are coming out saying he abused them. This is a situation where he did bad things on Twitter, has confessed to that, has talked about that, has apologized for that. No one's arguing about that. And that's not what Disney fired him for. And the other thing going on is this concerted right-wing smear campaign that is much bigger than James Gunn. It's much bigger than Disney. It's much bigger than the Talking Raccoon movie. It involves Gamergate and the concerted harassment of women and getting women in the industry fired. It involves the ArenaNet employees from a couple yeah. of weeks ago, which is a story we did not cover on this podcast. Um, I forget why, but if you don't know, there were employees of this online game company, ArenaNet, who um, talked back to some fans, and then the fans got really angry and got them both fired by ArenaNet, which is a horrible precedent. And then this happens. Um, 
you know, there was the Nintendo employee from several years ago who was um, the target of Internet ire and Nintendo Treehouse, and she got fired. So, like, this is a concerted effort by all these groups to get people fired they don't like. Their goal is to get liberals fired, specifically, uh, or people who they think are not culturally... uh, in the very narrow definition of what they like, I think I think the word you're looking for is SJWs. Is S- okay. their parlance? I don't want to use their parlance, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, and so, GamerGate is basically back, and that's the other discussion. And the most frustrating part of this is when I see the two conversations overlapping and saying like, "Well, yeah, the the, the side about like the bad GamerGate tactics and stuff that's true, but he did send those awful tweets." And it's like, yeah, no one's arguing about that. That's not the point here. Yeah. And there are a lot of other discussions to be had, you know, like, is it okay for someone who did shitty things to become better? Yeah, and yeah. I would say, yes, we should encourage and allow that. And Disney is sending a really bad signal by saying, no, you cannot improve. You are defined by your worst moments. And then people will come out of the woodwork if you say that explanation and say, well, yeah, but what about people who have, like, been, you know, accused of sexual harassment? Should they be allowed to get better? And I say, they did a little more than tweet, you stupid motherfucker, you don't get it. It's all wrapped up in the most frustrating ways. In my view, Disney did something horrendously shitty here, and the consequences of this are going to be fucking vast. Yeah, like, for me, my perspective on it was, I've been like, because I think another part of this is people, I think, being surprised that Disney did this, and that's something that's like I'm kind of surprised at the surprise, and and that I think people have widely misunderstood what has been happening with Me Too and all that stuff. Is that there are people that I now realize have thought that this that from the company's perspective, in, in all this stuff, like not just Disney, all these companies that have been firing people, you know, like Kevin Spacey and Ari Weinstein, like Bill Cosby, like all that stuff, and stop working with those people. Roseanne is the most recent instance, Roseanne Barr and all that stuff, that that has been about morality and that the companies are concerned with morality and they're making a moral judgment. And it's like, that's never been what's happening. That is that people have known about, like, the Roseanne stuff was not. No. A moral thing because we already knew that shit. Like that yeah. shit, like the James Gunn stuff, that was already out in the open. People had already written think pieces about all the shit that Roseanne Barr had done and like her shitty opinions and outspoken bullshit since the the ending of Roseanne when she kind of seems to have lost her mind. Um, and that all that was known. Like, and people in the industry have for decades at this point had known people who were in positions to be able to be able to do something about it had known about like Harvey Weinstein yes it's like it's not about the moral thing it's not we didn't have some sort of moral awakening as a society necessarily like from the company's point of view what we did was cause enough outrage from the other side of it from our side from like the the journalist side we've caused enough outrage to create enough pressure to force those companies to actually start doing about this shit that they have known about all along well yes maybe people had a moral awakening like yes. people in the world you know people who were not tuned into this stuff maybe people had a moral awakening companies do not have morals exactly and so companies did not have a moral awakening what they had was a spreadsheet and they saw oh this Roseanne tweet from today about Valerie Jarrett is hitting our stock price here now it's time to let her go and six months ago when she said the exact same racist bullshit it didn't affect our stock price yeah, not enough people noticed and like yeah. created an outrage around it yes and so that's what's actually happening here is is like you have to be cognizant of the fact that like Disney is not as a company 
making some moral judgment about James Gunn. Like that's not that's not what has occurred. Like what has happened is enough people have been able to use those tweets, which are, as we've said, indispensable. But they have used those tweets to cause enough outrage to force Disney to do something, to play its hand in some way. I think that I agree with you that like what Disney did and the choice they made was wrong. But I'm not surprised at it, and I'm I'm frustrated by it. But I think it's like I. I'll, here's why I'm surprised, Sean, because I would say I'm surprised. Because James Gunn has made them literally billions of dollars. Literally billions of dollars. The Guardians of the Galaxy movies, I don't remember the exact gross. Both of them are near a billion dollars in, in box office, and then you add in DVDs, Blu-rays, toys, all that stuff. Each of those are easily over a billion, and they would not be made without that guy, because those are the most, like, auteur right. Marvel movies. Like, they exist because James Gunn kind of... I mean, there, there were efforts to get them made before... James Gunn came on board, but they were kind of not going anywhere because it's a pretty difficult project, clearly. Um, and then Infinity War is built in no small part on the work done for Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, it is almost a, more of a sequel to that than any other part of the Marvel yeah. Universe. So, like, what you're doing is is firing a guy who's made you billions and is, was probably going to go make you more billions. And that's... This is like... I don't know, like the because usually the, the the thing here is like when you're like it's pretty easy to kick like a Harvey Weinstein or a Woody Allen or someone to the curb when their like commercial use is is like their commercial peak was years ago or right. something. You know, Disney likes making fucking money, and I also think like there is very possibly going to be a revolt amongst Marvel people. Like I think you know Chris Pratt could very easily come out tomorrow and say I'm just not doing Guardians three without James Gunn, and that movie's not going to happen unless yeah. they rehire him. That could, and I'm assuming that Guardians Three is not going to happen. Like that's well, just my assumption. Is I don't, which is weird because the pressure again was coming from a very specific subset of people, and I don't know if it was enough. In the same sense, some of these other things have been for Disney to say, "Okay, we don't need Guardians of the Galaxy 3. That's a surprising corporate decision to me. Kind of, but like I think when I have seen the way that people have responded to this broadly, yeah, they are not having a nuanced reaction to it. John. No, like people are having the moral outrage against James Gunn. Yeah, so it's like from Disney's point of view, when like you take the company's moral perspective out of the out of the equation because right. it doesn't really exist, they don't see a distinction between this. And any of the other Me Too stuff. No, you're correct. Like, from you're their perspective, correct. it's the exact same fucking thing. Yeah. And so that's why I say it's like I'm not surprised by it. What, and I'm not – this is one of those where I don't also honestly know what to do with it either. Like I don't know what on our side of it – this isn't a political thing. There's no – and I'd like vote with your dollar. I don't know how you send this very nuanced message with go vote with your dollar and don't see – like if they do end up making Guardians 3, I would probably say like maybe like don't see that. That's like the only, but that's the only specific instance where it's like if you boycott something else that Disney makes, they're not going to read that as a response to the James Gunn thing. No, and I don't. Yeah, and it's also again, it's not like like look, I really love the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I think James Gunn seems like a guy who genuinely like shifted in his life and seems like he had become a pretty good guy and a lot of people have been attesting to that and you know that doesn't excuse past behavior but I also believe that depending on the kind of behavior and I think tweets are probably okay for this redemption is okay you know mm -hmm. but that's not the thing that I guess upsets me most it is the pattern it is that you know I you know, wake up one morning and you're like oh god you know I thought Gamergate had just gone and moved into the White House but it's back as this thing getting people fired again you know and right. 
it's dangerous to the Me Too movement also when you oh, have absolutely. No, yes. when you have this bullshit getting tied up with all of that and people now we have the leeches and the piranhas coming in and eating the flesh of this thing. And you know, it's dangerous. If if the right wing in this country can just pick a person, target them, you find, you know, James Gunn made himself a fairly easy target by having that stuff in his life. But there's no one they can't do this to. Mm -hmm. There's no one you can't create a propagandistic smear campaign against and create the kind of outrage that would make an amoral corporation do this. Like, yeah, it's – this is how the world could work. And it's bad and it's a bad precedent. And Disney being such a dominant market leader should know better. And I don't even mean in a moral way. I just mean in like at some point this kind of thing would be – will be bad for business. And it could be bad for business as soon as – they make a Guardians of the Galaxy 3 without him, and Dave Bautista's not in it because he's already really angry about it, and Bradley Cooper isn't voicing Rocket anymore, and it's not a very fun movie, and it's bad, and it flops and hurts the Marvel brand permanently. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are scars that could come very fast from this, and there are scars that could take a while to accrue. But either way, it's just, it's a bigger conversation than about this one guy or the tweets. Yeah, no. And absolutely. it is a shitty situation, it is a disheartening situation. And I just, I don't know. It's it's weird. And we also, like, this is the other thing for me. We have so few details about this. Uh-huh. Like, um, the the firing statement came from Alan Horn, who is the head of Disney's movie division. So all of Disney, you know, Star Wars, Lucasfilm, Marvel, all, you know, the animated movies. Alan Horn oversees all of that. So he was like one step from Bob Iger, who would be the CEO of Disney. So that's very high up. We haven't heard from Kevin Feige at Marvel. We haven't really heard from any of the Guardians cast members other than Dave Bautista. Um, James Gunn has talked about it. He's been very conciliatory. He has not fought back at all. Uh, Sean Gunn, his brother, who in the movies um, mocaps Rocket Raccoon and also um, plays yeah. the uh, the guy who is He's like the one part of the ship. He's one of the pirates, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a he was also on Gilmore Girls. He's um, on that show, so if you know him from that. Um, and Sean Gunn had a long thread about this, also being like conciliatory towards Disney, but also trying to defend his brother. I think it's actually a pretty beautiful thread, and I would read it if you have time. Um, but we don't know. Like, did did Kevin Feige sign off on this? Is do the Marvel people know about this? Because James Gunn was. He had turned in a draft of Guardians 3. They were in pre-production on this thing. Apparently he was helping to shepherd in new people for the next phase of Marvel's film plan. So like that kneecaps a lot of that stuff. I'm not saying any of this necessarily good, bad, whatever. It's just like that's a – this is a much bigger corporate move than hiring one director. Yeah. And I just – we know so little about like what the thought process was, how – because this happened very quickly too. I had only become aware of the tweet controversy like the day before – um, yeah, I had no idea that anything was going on until James Gunn was fired. Yeah. So it was just like, it just hit. And maybe that's what Disney wanted, but it also blows it out into the mainstream so far. This is weird news. Yeah. And and here's another aspect to talk about that I was very frustrated at. And I think in the couple of days since, it has gotten better. But in the moment, the reporting around James Gunn's firing I thought was fucking terrible. Because none of it... Other than, I think the only one I saw that actually really mentioned the Mike Cernovich and, and that side of it, which is a huge part of how this happened, yes. was like Polygon's story on it. Which and, and that makes sense because Polygon has had to deal with Gamergate. The video game press has had to has seen this literal exact same shit happen, not just years ago, but like two weeks ago with Jessica Price and ArenaNet. 
And so it, you know, I thought like Polygon had a very good story on that, but a lot of like the movie news stuff. They had no idea how to cover it. They just, they just said like James Gunn was fired suddenly based on these tweets that like made like gave details around how the tweets existed, but didn't say anything about Mike Cernovich, about like the, the larger hate movement, like sort of targeting. Uh, James Gunn and how all this stuff resurfaced if anything it was like a sentence most of them didn't mention it at all in such a way that if you were reading it you would have no idea why even it was a thing all of a sudden and it just happened there's like no context for that and I was and again since then there have been individual writers at a lot of those sites that have written like think pieces about it that have addressed that but in the moment the, the shit that most people will have seen to hear that news didn't address that element of it at all and so there's part of me that almost can't blame people for having this very naive basic reaction to well he made a bunch of shitty tweets of course he got fired yeah because they don't they did the reporting didn't tell them about the other side of it the corporate doublespeak is what pisses me off so much it's the same thing as the roseanne stuff in a certain direction where like disney knew about all of this like disney had Zero amount new information on the day they fired James yeah. Gunn. There was no surprise. The, there was no surprise in the room. Zero amount on the day they fired him as on the day they hired him, you know, six, seven years yeah. earlier. And yet, they hired him back then. They let it go forward. They accepted his apologies and everything. And he made them billions of dollars. He did a huge amount to build out the Marvel Universe to, way it, to where it is now. He's probably one of the single most important creatives in their brand these days. Yep. Uh, and only after they let this guy make them billions of dollars did they decide it was more convenient to kick him to the curb. It's, it's a brutal statement about corporate capitalism to me. Yeah. You know, that like there is no such thing as redemption. You are useful as long as the spreadsheet says you're useful. And... We all have to remember that. Like, that is just yes, something, yeah. like, I even said this, I, this is a little off topic, but I do think, like, it's probably worth mentioning. Um, you know, when Black Panther came out earlier this year, giant success, it is, like, three spots away from being the highest grossing domestic box office earner of all time in the United States, all this stuff, and everyone is out there celebrating, you know, saying, this is the start of a new renaissance of, like, you know, black creatives in Hollywood, and we're going to get all these great, you know, um, you know, African-American-led superhero and mainstream movies and stuff, and I just, I, I see all that, I'm like, I want to believe the optimism, but this is Hollywood. Mm-hmm. If they can find a way to fuck up minority representation, they will. They're only the only reason they did Black Panther is because it made sense on the spreadsheet. Yeah, this is the James Gunn thing is not an issue of minority representation. I'm not saying that. You know, this is a white uh, privileged white guy who got fired. But it is but an I issue just, of capitalism. It is an issue of capitalism, and I just want you all to remember: if there comes a point culturally where Disney feels like, eh, you know what, this this stuff about not white people doesn't seem like it fits on the spreadsheet anymore, they will cut bait on that as fast as they fucking can because yeah. it's happened before. Mm-hmm. We've been through these cycles. And anytime you get optimistic about, you know, Hollywood seeming like it's doing the right or moral thing, you just have to remember Hollywood is not a person, it's a corporation. And, you know, contrary to what the Supreme Court of the United States says, corporations and people are not the same fucking yeah. thing. Yeah. And what's terrifying about it is that sense of the, like, the the corporation side of it has no sense of a moral lens on it. And so... It, what is very scary and is part of what has been very scary about everything about this political moment is just how much more effective the right wing is about raising a stink about something. Yes. Like they are so much better at outrage than the left is. Well, they're an actual propaganda machine. Exactly. Not a loose grouping of, you know, variously aligned interest groups. Yeah. Like, 
you know, I'm 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 worried about what happens to Star Wars in a world where mm-hmm. Disney has caved to this kind of right wing pressure because the right wing pressure against the Last Jedi it's a lot louder. Oh yeah, it's a hell yes. of a lot louder. They have harassed systematically. Everyone who is not a white guy associated with those movies in every... And even... And, and, and even Ryan Johnson, guys. yes. Yeah. yeah. It's basically just everybody, yeah. except for Mark Hamill. So they, they, they're like... Because Mark Hamill gave like an interview one time that if you misquote it, sounds like he didn't like Ryan Johnson, and so they've left him alone. Yes. Um, and again, the, the spreadsheet thing, we've all been celebrating that Star Wars has been so much more inclusive, and they've had you know uh, female leads, and that they have had you know more minority representation on screen, and that's all awesome. And I can absolutely see the scenario where Alan Horn and Bob Iger are sitting down with a spreadsheet and saying, you know what, this this Twitter noise is really annoying us, and it's not good for our bottom line. Kathleen Kennedy, you got to get rid of all those non-white people in these Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. And if you are too naive to think that's not a conversation that might be happening at Disney, you're an idiot. Like, that, yeah. that could absolutely be happening at Disney. And so these things have ripple effects is all I'm saying. Like, this is a, this is a situation that you can apply to a lot of other scenarios where, you know, um, corporate anti-logic could go in really bad directions. Yeah. So this is a dark conversation. It is. You want to talk about something else, Sean? Let's talk about something else, Jonathan. You want to talk about some actual comic books? Yeah, we talked a lot about Comic-Con. Yeah. And they didn't talk about comic books. I mean, I know there's lots of comic book stuff that still happens at Comic-Con, but you never hear about it. Because nobody cares about comic books. But I care about comic books, Jonathan. I care about Japanese comic books. I just don't read American ones. Yes. It's not nothing against them. It's just a big world, and I'm scared of it. Yeah. So, last week on the show, I talked about Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. And then I, I got some, uh, some tweets about that from, from some listeners, and it made me think about, I should talk about my larger Spider-Man project, because I've been kind of holding back, because it's like, I don't know if anybody gives a shit about it, but now I have at least two, I know you kind of give a shit about it, I know at least one fan gives a shit about it, I give a shit about it, so I'm going to talk about That's good enough for a green light. So we're going to dig in, Jonathan. So... The, the the issue we have I have had before me is that I own exactly up to issues um, 137 of The Amazing Spider-Man and, and Giant Size Spider-Man number 1 and 2 in physical versions. And that's as far as I get. There are currently... I still... I need to look into how they got to this point because it doesn't make sense if you crunch some of the numbers. But they very recently, I think in May, had um, Amazing Spider-Man issue 800... They shouldn't be at 800. The 700 was not that long ago, but they're at 800 all of a sudden. And so that's a lot of Spider-Man issues. You have one-eighth of it. Yes, I have one-eighth of it. I'm up to like 1974, basically, in Spider-Man comics. Um, and so that created the issue, what do I do from that point? Because I also, I am on issue 132, 131. I'm basically right on there. I just read... Giant Size Spider-Man number one, where, where Spider-Man meets um, Dracula, Dracula, like actual Marvel I comics. If you want to see Dracula, oh, you, oh, you want to see, see the this? book? Okay, yeah, Sean's got a see. giant fucking omnibus in front of me. Oh, yes. I want to see this giant fucking Spider-Man omnibus. So, yes, cool. I have brought samples for Jonathan so he can hear what I'm and understand visually what I'm talking about. And I'll try to refer to it so people can look it up on Google because this is going to be a long conversation that gets into a lot of bullshit. So, pursuant to what we talked about with Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. How I, Are you a lawyer now? Pursuant to? Yes. Pursuant to the... Because this is a law conversation. This is going to be complicated and important. Pursuant to the landmark case of Spider-Man v. Mary Jane. Yes. Um, I How I read... I didn't get into this because there's this whole story around this. 
um, at the time, and again, I didn't want to get bogged down to stuff that people didn't care about, but now I know that people do care about it, is how I read that was all of that is on a service called Marvel Unlimited, which is a subscription service that Marvel provides that where you can read digital comic books. Um, there's also, you can go through Comixology and they have Comixology Unlimited, which is a different service that has multiple different publishers. Um, and I haven't, I don't know, I know that Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane is sold on Comixology. I don't know about that subscription thing. But so if people want to read Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane digitally, um, the most cost-efficient way to do it is to just get a month subscription to Marvel Unlimited and read it that way. Now, so that was, uh, so obviously I was aware of Marvel Unlimited. That's how I read Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. It's the first time I had used that service. And so the thought at the time, of course, occurred to me, well, maybe this is how I can read all these old Amazing Spider-Mans that I don't have access to. Um, and so I tried to use that service, and I ran into a big stumbling block. And this is one of the reasons why I didn't talk about it last week on the podcast, because I didn't understand anything about how to use this fucking website is I didn't know if you use Marvel Unlimited, you have to use the app because the website is terrible. And I I don't have an iPad or a Kindle or anything like that. So if I'm like reading digital comics, I do it on my laptop. That's I have multiple Comixology comics. And so that's how I've done it before because I don't have a tablet. Um, but even if you don't have a tablet and you'd rather use your laptop to actually read the comics, use your phone to look up and find things and figure out what things are on the service. Because I'm going to show you just a little bit of how fucking confusing this is. Is if you go to the Marvel on website and are trying to find what comics you can read, you of course would go to the read comics tab. You can go to then the Marvel Unlimited tab. That's a bad idea. You cannot get anywhere from there. So don't click on Marvel Unlimited. So I, because I did that and went down a whole rabbit hole and instead I went to the series and it's just like, okay, I will browse by the series and find out the series. If you scroll to the bottom, bottom, you find the index and then you type in as first you might type in, because you're looking for Spider-Man comic books and you type in Spider-Man and then you are faced with the most baffling list of fucking titles you could ever imagine that just goes and goes and goes. You know, you can, I can, do I want to read Spider-Man and Arana special, The Hunter from 2006? No. Do I want to read Spider-Man and the Human Torch in Bahia de los Muertos, Edición Boricia in Espanol from 2009? No. I don't know why there's only one Spanish comic book on this list, but there's one. Um, I could read Spider-Man and the Secret Wars from 2009 to 2010. No, 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 none of these, none of these, none of these, none of these are what I'm looking for. Oh, hey, there's Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. That's really good. Um, scroll back to the top. Spider-Man, wrong idea. Shouldn't have typed in Spider-Man. So instead, let's type in what I did next because the the, the title of the mainline Spider-Man comic is Amazing Spider-Man. So it's like type in Amazing Spider-Man. It you didn't are, help. It didn't really help. And you're presented with this long list of comics. And this was, but this is where, well, it's got to be in this list was where my mind was at. This is like, I did this like a week ago, and I look, it's like, okay, Amazing Spider-Man in Silk, the Spider-Fly Effect Infinite comic from 2016, no. But then, Amazing Spider-Man 1999 to 2013. That is Amazing Spider-Man, but they did, in the 90s, they did all these, like, reprints of, like, let's start with issue number one, because that's when comic collecting was like, oh, Action Comics number one is now worth, like, a million dollars. So if we just made every issue a number one... We'll just make a bunch of money, and that didn't work, because that's not how collecting shit works, and the comic industry almost crashed. But so that's why the numbering on all this shit is very confusing. So it's like, Amazing Spider-Man 1999-2013 is the right comic book series, but not the right period in the history of that specific comic book series. So Amazing Spider-Man 2014 to present, same story, no. And then I saw this, and it's like, oh, 
this is the right one, and then it's, wait, no, it's not, because this is Amazing Spider-Man Annual, 1964 to 2018. Those are only the annual special issues that they did of Amazing Spider-Man, not the actual normal issues of Amazing Spider-Man. And this is where, last week, I was, like, tearing my hair out, and was like, they must just not have these on here. They must just not have gone back to the original, like, Steve Ditko, John Romita Sr. era Spider-Man, and I gave up and just read Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane and had a good time and forgot about all this shit. And then I was like, this it is just not possible that it's not on here. Specifically because when I was looking at other areas of the website, I saw that they had the old Daredevil comics. It's like, if they have the original Daredevil comics, there's no fucking way they don't have their most popular superhero, Spider-Man, in those original comics. So then I had this thing of like, well, maybe there's some other way to find this. And I type in THE Amazing Spider-Man and... The Amazing Spider-Man gets you The Amazing Spider-Man from 1963 to 1998. This is the most infuriating fucking thing I've had to deal with in forever. Because one, every Amazing Spider-Man comic is called The Amazing Spider-Man. They all have the in the title. There's no comic called Amazing Spider-Man. But of course, if you're alphabetizing something... And it's called The Amazing Spider-Man. You either alphabetize it by S if you're just going by the superhero name or the normal way you alphabetize it by A and it's The Amazing Spider-Man. It's not The Amazing Spider-Man. Like, that's just not how fucking alphabet... Like, you don't put The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time in the fucking T's. That's not how that shit works. You don't put The Amazing Spider-Man right next to The Invincible Hulk in The Fantastic Four. Like, that's just... You can't alphabetize shit that way. It doesn't make any sense. It's also particularly infuriating because in other areas of this website, The Amazing Spider-Man 1963 to 1998 is just referred to as Amazing Spider-Man 1963 to 1998. And it's just like, ah, it, it made me want to fucking just, just explode. It was so fucking frustrating. Okay. Because, yeah. Sorry, can we take an intermission from your story okay. for a second? intermission. Yeah, real quick. Because I, I opened the book you gave me, Sean. Yes. And I was leafing through it, and I opened right to Gwen Stacy's death. Yes. And I just read it for the first time, and it's really touching. It's really, it's, yeah. It's, it's very sad. It's Were these originally in black and white? No. Okay. We will get to that. Okay. Don't anyway, worry. That was my little intermission, because it was just really cool to see that for the first time. Yes. This, is cool, this art is very nice. Yes, that's, um, I can't remember who did, I think Gil Kane maybe did those. Um, 121, 122. Anyways, back to Marvel Unlimited. Yes. Back to not reading the comic books yet, because this was the position I was in just a few days ago. The other thing I thought to do was, well, if I can't find it by going by the series, or I actually I could find it by going by the series, because I think I eventually stumbled on that. But I was like, how else would you find this? Because that was absurd, the process of trying to do that. It was like, surely if I just go to character and go to Spider-Man, and, and they just have it there. And it's like, no, because they just have every fucking comic book ever here, and you can't browse anything this way. Because they also don't let you change the number of items that display on the page, so you just have to constantly click load more, load more, instead of just quick clicking, like, load 1,000 items like a normal website would do when they have this many things to organize. You know, like, I'm not saying that organizing every Spider-Man comic ever is an easy task, but they have not done a very good job at it regardless. The other way, actually the best way to do this I have found is not under the Read Comics tab, which is baffling. Usually you go to the Read Comics tab if you want to read comics. If you actually want to find a specific comic book, you should go to Explore the Universe. In Explore the Universe, they do have different character pages than the character pages you find if you go into Read Comics. 
Those just list the comic books. If you go to explore the universe and then go to the characters, then you can click on Spider-Man and you go to basically like a Wikipedia style page. And you click on the second pane called In Comics Profile and scroll halfway down the page, you eventually come to a thing where you can, that has Spider-Man Legacy and you click the button Explore and then that will take you to the actual page any sane person wants, which lists all the major Spider-Man series in chronological order down the line. Which is just the page you want. That's the page anybody would want. Is just this page. And it takes like five clicks and like a weird knowledge of this website to fucking find it. I would bookmark this if you haven't already. Yes. So you can, and there you can find, and here you can see Jonathan. What do they call it? Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man 1963 number 1 to 441. Not The Amazing Spider-Man. Fuck off. Because you can also see all these say The. This says The. This says The. This says The. They all say The Amazing Spider-Man Marvel Unlimited website. Why do you do this to me? Why do you drive me crazy? So I just had to go down that detour to just just get us to base one because it fucking it drove me crazy. It took me several days to figure this out. Finally, I found... How you get these, and they do have, if you have Marvel Unlimited, they basically have every issue you could want of, of any comic book up to the past couple of years. And so there's a ridiculous number of comic books available. Marvel Unlimited is an incredible deal, um, especially if you're interested in old comics. But then I clicked on Read Now and was like, I want to read these comics, and I ran into a slight issue... Which is only an issue for me, not an issue for most people. And this is where now, Jonathan, I'm going to have to hand you some materials and we'll have to talk about oh boy. old comic books and how we read old comic books. So, how I originally read Amazing Spider-Man, or the, excuse me, the Amazing Spider-Man, um, was, as you were seeing, Jonathan, mostly these essential Spider-Man omnibuses that have the, the art collected in black and white. The comics were never originally published in black and white. Um, they originally were all colored, but of course, um, if you're collecting a huge, because this is like 30 plus issues, this is like 300 something pages of comic books. Um, if you have that, you're not going to print it on nice glossy paper and, and, uh, and color it and all that. Cause this was also in like the late nineties, early two thousands, they made these. So they just printed them in black and white on like kind of decent paper stock. Nothing amazing. This is basically the same kind of paper stock that manga uses. Yeah, it looks like newspaper. Yeah, so it's kind of like newspaper stock. And and these are great, or they were great back before digital comics were ever a thing. It was in no way cost efficient or effective to to read these. Um, you know, you had just had to find these giant fucking omnibuses because you weren't just going to get you know every actual physical issue of Amazing Spider Man or nice copies of them. So I do really like these black and white versions. I think the art stands out well in black and white. Obviously, having it colored would be ideal. But this was how I originally read these comics, and I like them a lot that way. But I didn't ever manage to, back in the day, find volumes one and two of Essential Amazing Spider-Man. I only started with three and got four, five, six. And so then when I was reading them, I was like, well, I want to read the original ones. And so I eventually found different ways they packaged them. Because for whatever reason, again, this was before... People commonly used Amazon and shit like that. This is a long time ago. And I found at our local bookstore what were called the Marvel Masterworks. So Marvel made a series called Marvel Masterworks where they re-released their old comics um, and in nice glossy paper. But they did one thing is they recolored all of them. And so this is something that's oh. extremely common in comics, like from like old comics for sure. If you ever read anything that's made before like 1980, it's almost certainly been recolored if you're reading it digitally at the very least. Um, and even more recent comics like Sandman just had like their re-release of Sandman, of Absolute Sandman, I think recolored some issues. 
it's something that happens. I am fine with recoloring comic books when it involves the original artists and the original colorists and like they went back and they decided we're going to recolor it and we're involving the original people. The one thing I don't like that much is these digital recolorings they did with the Marvel Masterworks because I think it sucks out a lot of the the personality of the coloring and it kind of blurs and makes the original um, pencil and inking work less distinct. And these are the versions that are available on Marvel Unlimited. I'm going to show you, Jonathan, a special treat as an example of this. I have my Marvel Masterworks. And then my dad has... I, I probably have told this story at some point on the comics or on the podcast. But how I got into the comics is that my dad was into comics when he was a kid. And we have in our closet upstairs a giant shoebox full of original Spider-Man comics. That's and pretty I, cool. And I went digging through those to find one that was not really nice... Um, and so I found one that had its cover ripped off that's not worth anything. So you can compare, Jonathan, I think that's Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man issue number 19, and compare the okay. original coloring work on the original paper with the recoloring that has happened. And for me personally, there's a huge amount of personality that exists in the original coloring, even though there's a lot of defects in it, obviously. The way that the, you know, it's that kind of classic comic book, like the giant fucking dots that if you like, you look in close, you can very clearly see the dots of color that they use. While that is technically not as like, you know, as great as if they were able to just have like continuous colors and just basically paint on every page and not have to deal with dots, that would obviously have been ideal back in the day. They had to make these comics with that, those coloring techniques. And so the comics were built with that in mind. And I personally find that, like, the texture that exists on the page and on, like, the little white spaces between those dots make it so that you can see, Jonathan, on the page you're looking at. Yeah. There's a lot of these, like, just solid color backgrounds. On the digital version, they're just totally solid. Those on, are awful. Yeah. On the original version, there's a lot of texture to the image because there's white space in between. And so a wall looks more like a wall because no painted wall is solid blue. There is variation in the color. And so I think those like digital, those are the pages that always really stick out to me as looking just really cheap is the ones that just have a gradient or a solid color background and it just doesn't look as good. Yeah, they, it's interesting. Some panels, they've not changed the, like the, the color choices that much, but you definitely lose some of the stylization. The other thing I notice here, I've seen this sometimes when like a manga gets colored. Yeah. They do this where they've filled in a lot of white space. And I don't know why you would do that necessarily, because sometimes it's left white for an artistic reason to like leave space in the other. There's one here where it looks like Peter Parker is like pushing Mary, or not Mary Jane, Uncle uh, uh, Aunt, May. Aunt, Aunt May in a wheelchair, and the wall behind them is white and just looks like a white wall in their house. And here they've turned it lime green. Yeah. And, and it's just, it like makes it all kind of muddled, like there's too much color. Like this looks very like you look at it like, oh my god, there's like a giant bubblegum wrapper. Yeah. And then I look over here and it's like, okay, this looks like something that was like more, I don't know, artistically thought through. And there's, you know, there are imperfections. There's like blur to the colors, like the skin tones come outside of the yeah. skin. Like it, there's bleed in the color, which I I agree, I like it looks. It's kinda like color on a film strip versus digital or yeah. something. But yeah, I mean, and yeah, some of this I could see as like, okay, that's a nice modern recreation of it. And some of it's like, you've completely remade that panel. That's not what that was supposed to look like. There's one here of J. Jonah Jameson on TV that in the original is like all stylized blue and looks really cool and like kind of 70s-esque. Yeah. And now they've colored it in with like his normal skin tone. The TV is red. The background is yellow. All this stuff. And it's not as, not nearly as visually striking. Yeah. 
And so, so, so that was the conundrum I then ran into of do I really want to read through all of the amazing, the rest of the amazing Spider-Man with, and obviously once you hit like about the 90s, it's the original colorings and the digital versions, but like that's, you're basically talking about like 200 issues of these comics and me dealing with not really, it, it's not as bad because I can, I respect the work that went into recoloring it. I think like there are very valid reasons why it needed to be recolored for printing and digital purposes. Like I would never expect honestly these to be available digitally in that way, so it's like, I don't know why I was that surprised to find it, but I just had kind of forgotten that I never really liked the way the comic books looked that way, and so I was like, there has to be a better way, I know there's a better way, and I went looking for a better way, Jonathan, and there is a better way, it's just not very easy to get through normal means, and so they, in 2006, Marvel partnered with a, a company to release these DVD box sets um, of a number of different uh, comic series based on their major characters that were basically just full PDF scans of original issues on a DVD. With that each sounds DVD good. having like one gigabyte worth of just comic files. Just and like, you could just put them on your computer? And you, Yeah, you just rip them onto your computer and they sold them. They did not sell very well um, because they weren't, they weren't publicized very well. They were actually pretty cheap back in the day from what I've read. A lot of them are very difficult to find because they didn't make a lot of them. And you can kind of get some used ones. I was looking the other day for like 150 plus bucks. And it was like, mm, like that's a lot of money. That's not that much money for what it is. But it also like they are DVDs, old DVDs that you're selling buying used. I was like, I don't know. want to get into that. And I at least want to check the product out. And of course, if you're just selling somebody a fucking DVD with PDFs that you can just rip off the DVD, you're basically asking pirates to just be like, hey. And so I went, hey, pirates, it's like, I am, I technically have legal access to all these comics through Marvel, my Marvel Unlimited subscription. So it's like, fuck it, dude, let's just pirate something. And so I pirated something and I found them and they are just scans of, and they're in pretty decent quality of the gorgeous original issues. And I now have all those. And so this, and, but this has something here. I'm good to Jonathan. I'm going to hand you the original issue again and just like, there's something on these two pages that you don't get if you buy the Marvel Masterworks, oh, right? Oh, of course. It's the ads. Yes. It's the ads and all the extraneous material that you don't get in any other release of any of these comic books. And so since these are just PDFs of the original issues and all the issues, they, you have access to all the ads. And more critically for me, because the ads are fun to look at, but they're like, I can only see so many ads for like, you know, x-ray glasses and that and like Karate Man and that bullshit um, before it's like, I've seen one, I've seen them all. But it is mostly, there are two things. There is the spider's web, which is the letters column that they had running in Spider-Man forever, um, which is, you know, fans would write in letters, and then the editors like Stan Lee, and then eventually um, other people take over, write in short responses to them. And then also you have the uh, bullpens page, which is where they made announcements. You have Stan Lee had his soapbox where he would just talk about something for like a whole page and just... You know, till then, fill your days with joy, your nights with peace, your life with love, Excelsior Stan. And so you get access to all the extraneous material on which Marvel and Stan Lee built the original brand. And this is the shit I fucking wanted. Because it's so good. And so this is what I have been reading now. And what I'm going to continue to read for the rest of it is... Yeah. This is this is the shit you want. I've gone back and like re-looked at a bunch of issues I'd already read just to see some of the stuff. And I also want to read something that I found was very... Eye-opening is maybe the wrong word because I know that this had existed before Twitter. But it made me feel like... It made me give me a weird faith in humanity of like, oh, right, we have always been like this. We've always been shitty. 
is some of the Spider's Web letters columns from the issues post Gwen Stacy's death are just amazing because when they killed Gwen Stacy, like that was almost unprecedented in comic books. Like you didn't kill off major characters like that, and especially like that. Like you just Jonathan just saw the pages. Like she's fucking dead. Oh, yeah. they kill her. There's no like she falls off and like Spider Man doesn't see her die, and then she comes back three issues later. And if I'm not mistaken, they don't split it between issues. Like that issue ends and she's dead. Right? Yeah, she yeah, yeah yeah that issue ends and she's. You don't have to wait until next week to see, did Spider-Man save her? Yes, the last page of issue 121, the night that Gwen Stacy died, is Spider-Man cradling Gwen Stacy in his arms, saying, like, Goblin, I'm going to find you and I'm going yeah. to kill you. That's what I had opened the book to, and I'm like, oh, yes. wow. Yeah, and and the next page is him, or the next issue is him tracking down the Green Goblin, getting in a fight with him, and then that's basically the end of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1, is basically that, that fight, and the glider killing him and everything. But anyways, I want to read... Two letters that from the Spider's Web that are reacting to uh, Gwen Stacy's death that are, again, just felt like Twitter has changed things about, like, the availability of this stuff and, and like, the volatility and how you, how you can get it out there. But it never – but it's the human essence, like, transferred to Twitter is what we're talking about. And the human essence has always been there. So I want to read two, two letters. Um, Dear Cruds. You evil-eyed, black-handed, bow-legged, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, bloodthirsty orcs. This is shortly after The Lord of the Rings was very popular in the States. Um, you killed Gwyn. She was the best thing to happen to Peter Spidey Parker, one-man soap opera in ages. Wait till I get you. This had better turn out to be an illusion or something, hyphen, or else. Man, Last Jedi Trolls, you gotta up your yeah. game. That's some good yeah. insults there. Evil-eyed, black-handed, bow-legged, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, bloodthirsty orcs is a great sentence. That sounds like a sentence out of Treasure Island where, like, they're explaining who uh, Long John Silver is. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that, that letter was written by Jane Starr, 90 Fairway Drive, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, because they put their addresses in, because that's how you did shit back then. Man, if we made that a requirement for Twitter, where, like, everything you said just had your address printed on it. <laughs> We'd be living in a very different world, huh? <laughs> then the other one, I love this one. Um, this this needs a little bit of explanation of in, in when Gwen Stacy dies, um, the Green Goblin says to Spider-Man um, this kind of weird line that is definitely, like, the Green Goblin doesn't actually quite know how Gwen Stacy died because Spider-Man saves her and he whips, like, he, he webs her neck. But how she actually dies is that the whiplash from him uh, saving her from falling off the bridge breaks her neck and she dies. And that's how she dies canonically. They actually like specifically spell that out in another uh, letters page later. Um, but but um, the Green Goblin, not quite understanding how she died, just says to Spider-Man, of course she died. Like anyone who falls from that height is going to die whether they hit the ground or not. And it's like kind of this weird line of dialogue. And so that's the context for this. What is maybe my favorite letter I've seen in any of these. Dear Marvel... Oh, the other context, Jerry Conway is the writer of that issue. Dear Marvel, somebody ought to throw Jerry Conway off the George Washington Bridge to see if the fall kills him before impact. That's Richard Nathan, 5307 Sepulverda Boulevard, apartment 301, Van Nuys, California, um, with the area code 91401. My reaction is, in some ways, the world has changed an awful lot. And in some ways, it has not changed at all. Yep, it's great. Um, the, the editorial comments to those are a few more letters like these, Jane and Rich, and Jerry may jump without any encouragement from us. Of course, there were more than a few positive reactions also. Wow. I gotta tell you, Sean, um, 
as an academic, I think yes. I can call myself that, uh, when I saw you showing me, like, the, the new colors and that that's the digital version and then you had your cool, like, original copy of it, I just, my skin was crawling, like... Uh-huh. You know, it's not that, like, those new colors are so awful, but it's just, like, you need to archive the original stuff. You just have to do it. And I am so happy that even if you kind of have to pirate it to get it now, that someone scanned all of this, archived it, that it is there, it's not going anywhere. That is a godsend, because this is art. This is important stuff. And, like, I'm really glad you have it. (laughs) I'm really glad it's out there. Um because yeah, it's it's and you know it's good that they have a version of it on the comics app. You know, wouldn't, yeah. it's better than nothing, right? But this is very cool to have. Uh, this PDF you have also doesn't do the stupid fucking thing where it goes panel by panel by default. Yes, um, that, that is an important thing. Of um, if people want to read these, I would download the program Comic Book Reader, and okay. and I've kind of configured it for it how I like it because it's. That's how you want to read these, um, because if you just do put it in a normal PDF file, like it's not going to do everything you quite wanted to do. Um, because this, like, the comic book reader does a good job at sizing things the right way and everything like that, because it's a dedicated app. And then you can, if you want, do stuff like read two pages if you have like the old comics don't have a lot of like double splash pages, so it's not an issue. But newer ones, if you were doing that, that's how you do it. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So this is cool. This is cool stuff. I'm glad to learn about it. Um, yes, that is my recommendation. If you know what this, sorry, okay, yeah. I was just gonna say, you know what this reminds me of the PDF thing they did there is um, when Dragon Ball uh, did a big re-release in Japan a couple of years ago. They did these omnibus editions of the original Shonen Jump versions right, of yeah. it, and it was at the full original Shonen Jump size, which is about twice the size of the Tankoban, the, the a little more than twice the size, like graphic novel versions. They also restored the original color pages, which Dragon Ball uh, had a color chapter like every four chapters or so, like once a month in Weekly Jump. It was like two chrome color. It was not full color, yeah. but it was it was there. And, uh, it also, they, they restored all of that. They restored all of the, uh, like, ads that were in the pages, all the stuff you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, they had, about. like, the little Shonen Jump, like, Pirate Man yep. in the, the margins at the top. Yeah. Yep. And they released it all in the actual, like, size and format. Better than a PDF, even. But that was, uh, we both have all of those. And yes. That's really good to have. Yeah. Because that is, that's, that's the shit I want more than yeah. anything, is I want, like, the original versions and, and that's, it has so much charm and history to it. And again, like, uh, there are a lot of very good technical reasons, and I don't want to, like, deface the work that those people did remastering these comics. Because again, like, this is a team, they did that with all of these. You know, they went back and, because if you're going to re-release them and, and release them digitally, like, that work needed to be done for a lot of technical reasons. Because it's like, cause also, like, you can't take the coloring they originally did and put that on different paper stock. It's not going to look the same. So right. there's a lot of stuff like that. So it's like, I don't blame them. And I think for most people, the digital recolorings that are on Marvel Unlimited are totally fine. For me, I want the original shit. I want that shit in my veins. And I now have found a way to do it. So that is my recommendation if you care that much about old comic books. Because they did that for, like, Fantastic Four and a couple of other characters as well. That is the method I would I would choose to read these. Is how I'm going to go from now on. And then, of course, if I do continue this for hundreds more issues, eventually I'll probably just use the, the app in the Marvel Unlimited website for the ones where there's no difference. Because then that's just more convenient. But, yeah. yeah. Read awesome. comic books. It's, it, it was a crazy long adventure. But I was very happy to reach a very happy ending. All right. Well, I'm glad for you, Sean. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, I guess the last big thing to talk about today is I want to go back to Octopath Traveler and talk about okay. that a little bit. Because I had played eight hours last time. I've played 30 hours now. So I've played a lot more of this game. I'm not tired of it. On the contrary, I absolutely love Octopath Traveler. I have a few complaints. I have a couple little wrinkles with it. But on the whole, I think this is a 
magnificent, beautiful, touching, stirring game. And I want to tell you guys a little more about it. Because I told you guys about the story aspects last time. And I guess we'll start there again. I want to get into some of the gameplay stuff more. But, you know, I was talking about I had... I was almost done with all of the initial, like, chapter one character introductions last time. I've now obviously done all of those. I have the characters. I'm well into the chapter twos. I've actually done one of the chapter threes as well, because you can kind of go in any order you want. The only thing is, it's not even level gated. It's just that the level might be too high, and you would go die if you tried it, right? right. That sort of thing. But you can go try whatever the hell you want if you really want to, like, grind the way your way through it. You're like, that's that's level 45 chapter, and I'm only level 20, but fuck it. I'm going to try it. Yeah. You could do that if you want, um, which is nice. I guess. Um, but yeah, I really love the storytelling in this game. I All the things that people have been pointing to as like bugs in Octopath Traveler's story, I see 100% as features. And I guess part of it is, and this is a thing that happens from time to time in criticisms of movies, games, books, what have you, is I don't like it when people review the thing they want or the thing they think right. they're going to get and not the thing that's actually there. Because, you know, one of the things I've heard a lot in the criticism of Octopath, and overall, actually, I think especially once this game got out into the world, it's been very well received. I think some critics had issues with it. It seems like people have enjoyed it more. Yeah. And I think part of that, too, is I think this game is not designed to be binged in one week. When you're trying to review it, I could see... A lot of games would make me crazy if I tried to do that. Yeah. But anyway... Um, yeah, so one of the things I've heard, though, as a persistent criticism is, oh, they made this cool game with eight characters, but the eight stories don't really intersect. Like, that's crazy. They forgot to do the part where all the characters meet up and the stories intersect. And it's like, they didn't forget that. Like, that's that's not the game. Like, the game really is... And this does frustrate when people act like this is something like Square Enix spent three years making the game and they're like, we forgot to do the important part. Right. No, it is this very small scale thing about these eight characters who have their own stories. They kind of have their own subcasts in some cases. They have their own goals and they're going through the world and kind of helping each other out with it. But when you're seeing their story, you're just seeing their story. The stories do not like in chapter three overlap where like one character realizes the doodad they found is the thing the other character needs and it's what they're going to go kill the god with. Because again, as I talked a lot about last week, this is a really aggressively small scale JRPG and I find that immensely refreshing. You know, so each of these stories never like gets bigger than I think the world they have built allows. And I think part of that, it is important that there is not like this giant, you know, Tarantino-esque like interconnectedness to all the different stories. They're not trying to play tricks on you with that or anything. It It is just about seeing these different short stories play out. Uh, like you're reading, you know, a book of short stories or something like that, or watching some short films, but in a video game context, obviously. I don't know what the video game equivalent of that would be. Right. Um, and you're going through and seeing those, and you go back and forth, and you can you know, kind of build your characters together because they all help each other out. But I feel like that part that everyone's, like, wanting out of the, like, explicit diegetic narrative where everything comes together... The game doesn't need to give you that in the story. That's you. That's what you're doing. That's what you are there as the player. You have these eight characters. You can choose who to put in your party. You're building them up together. Once in a while, they'll have little support conversations that are nice to see that kind of show some of the relationships among them. But, you know, I think you're supposed to kind of create some of that in your head and make that your own sort of headcanon in how these characters, you know, they're together because they're all at on some level wanting to see the world. And some of them have more concrete goals and some of them have less concrete goals. But as we, you know, learned in the first text box of The Legend of Zelda, you shouldn't go alone. Um, right. You know, um, and so they're going together and you kind of fill that in on your own. And there is this kind of, especially with the sprite-driven 
artwork and a world that is, you know, it is not a, you know, a full filled in 3D open world. It is something that that kind of artwork evokes a lot for you. And I think the storytelling has those little spaces where it evokes a lot for you. And there is a just a gentleness that allows you to sort of be there with it. And so... That's just one of my frustrations is when I see that of people saying like, you know, that giant mistake they made in the storytelling of Octopath Traveler, that this isn't a massive interconnected Rashomon style story with these eight different characters. It's just not what it's trying to be. That is so fundamentally what it's not trying to be. Like one of the most clarifying moments for me in this game so far in terms of just I think what a small scale good heart this game has is is when, like, the side quest system clicked in for me. Because there are side quests where people who have, like, orange indicators above their head might have something for you to do for them. And I was in this one town, and this guy was, uh, this little kid was waiting on this bridge, and he's kind of looking over the river, and I talked to him, and I'm like, why are you at the bridge? And he says, I'm waiting for my grandfather. He was coming from another town. He hasn't arrived yet. He was coming to play with me. And I'm like, okay, kid. And that's, like, something, like, triggers or something. Oh, this wasn't even a side quest triggering. That was just the kid said that. And then I'm out in the world later on, and I'm coming at that city from a different angle, and at a different place, I find an old man waiting by the side of the road, and he has an orange indicator above his head, and he's like, I'm going to see my grandson, but I got lost, and I'm kind of injured, and I don't know how to get there, and you have... And then you killed him and took all his money. That's a harsh world, old man. That's what you get. Not quite. I I could have stolen from him if I wanted to, but I think what I did is you can, with with Ophelia's path action, you can guide people and make them like a supporting character, but you can also guide them through the world. And I guided him, brought him into my party, brought him to that city. And when I approached the kid, a cutscene started where the grandpa went up. And there was just this really nice little scene where they reunited and they talked because they don't get to see each other much. And then from then on out in the game, they're standing on that bridge together hanging out. And it's just like, that was a really clarifying moment for me. Because that's what this game is about. It's about those little moments. It's about a world that feels... Like, even if the story does not always feel like, you know, okay, Ophelia's chapter two is not deeply linked to Primrose's chapter two, the world itself is very alive, it is very interlinked, there is a logic to its geography and its culture, and that's the world you're going around and exploring, and it is fundamentally for every character about getting out there in the world and learning things about it and learning things about themselves through it. And that sort of small-scaled, you know, just good-hearted, really basic human level storytelling I find immensely refreshing because I think it is really difficult especially in this in the world we live in to do a big mainstream $60 game that is 60 hours or more to play where there is not some giant earth-shattering thing hanging over your head at all times right do you know what I mean like how many games do you ever get to play where there is not some kind of massive stakes going on on some level in this thing and Octopath Traveler really eschews that. If that's not what it's about. It's very small scale. Each of the chapters are just these, I think, really often sweet, interesting, um, introspective short stories about these characters. And sometimes they're more goal-oriented. And some of those can be a little duller to me. But sometimes they're just about the characters having to do something in this city. And in the in the course of that, they learn something about themselves or about the world. And I think the writing is very unassuming and direct and and interesting in how it's written. I I just really enjoy the storytelling of this game and I enjoy it for what it is, not for what it isn't. And you know, I just it's something I always um encourage in looking at any piece of art, which is try to meet the thing where it is mm-hmm. because I've had difficulty with that myself when I was younger. I think it's a tough thing to get to do yeah. sometimes, especially in a very very hype-driven culture is to meet the thing where it is, not where you want it to be. 
And I think if you do that with Octopath Traveler, I think there are so many beautiful things going on below the surface. And some of this just is my taste. You know, it's it's the reason why I, uh, I shouldn't say prefer, but like I, I connect more with the films of Yasujiro Ozu than I do Akira Kurosawa because Ozu's stories are these really small-scale human dramas about very everyday things, and that just tends to connect more with me. And that's a very personal thing for me, but that's what Octopath Traveler is about. My other favorite game of the year, uh, Celeste, is another great example of this, where it's this big platforming game where it's just about one character trying to kind of beat their own inner demons and climb up a mountain. But indie games kind of... They've owned that space forever, yeah. right? And this is a big AAA Square Enix game, getting to do that on this big 60-hour scale. So I just wanted to say that I really do love these kind of gentler sides to the game. Cool. And I've already talked about the presentation, the music, the visuals. It's fucking amazing. They only get better as the game goes along. I want to talk about the combat. Okay. The combat in this game is so insanely fucking good like, the only competition it would have for me on, like, the best JRPG battle system would probably be Persona 5. Like, it is way the hell up there. It is so fucking well done. It is essentially an evolution of the Bravely Default combat system, but I think it is simplified, streamlined, and focused in a lot of really key ways. Where, if you don't remember, I have talked about Bravely Default yeah. on this podcast, but it's been years. Bravely Default is an insane game. And it is a game that makes you insane because of how much is going on with it. In the combat itself, you have the, the key system there is called the Brave Default System, where you start with one Brave Point. If you default, which means you basically pass a turn, you get another Brave Point, and you can spend all your Brave Points to take extra turns. And so if you have three Braves, you could go three times in a row, attack someone three times, and you could like you know inflict more damage, but also stacking damage, and you would use it strategically, but then you would lose your next turn. Or you would lose your next three turns. I think. Right. And in tandem with that was a very complicated job system where I believe in Bravely Default there were 16 jobs available and all four of your characters could have any of those 16 jobs. In addition to normal leveling points, like just uh, experience points, you also had job points. Your experience points just were your overall stats. Your job points you could um, you could spend on your jobs to get new skills, and then you would get support skills that you could equip to your character in multiple slots. And you could, if you wanted to, uh, get all four characters to the max level with all 16 jobs, which I did when I played Bravely Default. And you could then have every skill on Earth, and you could customize your character to be kind of whatever the hell you wanted. And then with this kind of deceptively complicated Brave Default combat system, you could spend on all of that. And like even talking about it now, my head spins a little bit, because that's a big game, and it took a solid like 60 hours to get my head around it, because uh -huh. so much is going on. Um, Octopath Traveler, I think, is an improved version of it, where in combat, it looks, it's laid out like a normal JRPG combat. You have your team of four on the right, the enemies are on the left. You can attack, you can use skills, you can defend, you can use items, you can flee, right? All those basic things. But there's a system called BP, I think that stands for Battle Points, and every character starts the match with one Battle Point, and they can get up to five. And um, what you can do is you can spend those battle points, kind of like brave points, but they don't they don't represent turns. And what the battle points do is, like, let's say I have two. Well, what you have is you have five, and then you have one for every turn. And if you use it, then you don't get a battle point the next turn. That's kind of getting too complicated. But let's say I have two available, and I hit you hit the right bumper to use them. And I hit right two times, and I pick sword. My character will attack with the sword twice. 
All right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I could use it on a skill. Like, let's say it's magic and I want to use Blizzard to use some ice. What it will do is it will in- increase the intensity of that spell. This is also, I think, a thing from Bravely Default. Because what it means is that there are not multiple levels of spells like Fire, Fyra, Fyraga, that kind of thing from uh, Final Fantasy. It's just basically you have a low-level Fire, high-level Fire, and then how many BP you attach to it determines its impact, like it's the amount of it's going to do, plus your own level, obviously, and your equipment and stuff like that. So you have those, and you have to be very strategic with those, because the way you in, pick, um, uh, put damage onto characters is that all the, or onto characters, onto enemies, the enemies all have weaknesses, which is a common thing in JRPGs at this point, you know. Kind of Persona style, where there are elemental things, and there are, kind of like in Persona 3, there's the different um, weapons that they will be weak to. And each enemy under it has a, you know, counter with what its different weaknesses are. And you can either scan them with your scholar type to find those weaknesses, or you can just attack them. And if they are weak to sword, you will find out they're weak to sword. And if you would inflict their weak point enough, they will break. And a big break sign will come up, and the controller will shake very hard because of the Switch's HT rumble stuff. Right. And once they're, they are in break mode, they will lose their next turn and any attacks they had this turn, because there's also a Final Fantasy X style thing on the top that shows what order people are going in. Every JRPG should have that. Yeah. Don't, a lot of them don't. Final Fantasy X is like 20 years old, and there's a lot of things we still haven't taken from it. Anyway, um, Digimon also does this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they will skip that turn, skip the next turn, and now you can, you know, inflict really heavy damage on them. But it's kind of a risk reward thing because if you use all of your BP to just get them into the break, then you cannot, uh, inflict as much damage on that. So you have to think about team composition and really go like, okay, if I have Tressa here and I have her as a, I'll talk about the job system in a second, but I have her as a merchant and a scholar, and this guy is weak to wind, which Tressa has, but he's also weak to fire, which Cyrus, my scholar, has. Um, I need to attack him with wind enough that he will go into break, but I don't want to do it with both of these guys. So maybe I have Tressa do two or three BP, but leave her a little bit so she can get that going. And then Cyrus will have four BP so he can do a max level attack because four is the max you can use and really wipe this guy out. And this is a constant like strategic thing you're thinking about. And they make it very interestingly strategic early on, but the harder the game gets, the more it becomes almost like a puzzle to figure out of what you're going to do with all your characters. And there's all these different abilities you can mix and match, like Tressa, who is my main character, the Merchant class, which is her base class, has a move called Donate BP, where at the start of a match, I could donate her 2 BP to another character and have them just go for max right off the bat. And in some scenarios where you're kind of going through a dungeon or something, that might be enough to finish it in one turn, but it's also kind of a risky proposition because you'll be leaving Tressa and the other character with no BP and they're going to have to build it back up. So that's the basics of the battle system. With that is the job system, where there are eight jobs, and each character is defined at the start by what job they have. So Tressa is a traveling merchant, so her job class is merchant. Cyrus is a scholar, so his job class is scholar, which is the magic type. He's like the mage, you know? So there's those eight jobs, those eight classes, and then as you play through, you find these shrines where you get all eight classes as a second job, and you can assign those to any character. Now, only one character can have that second job at a time, but you can mix and match and have all eight have, you can, like, rewire it. So, like, again, as I said, Tressa could have Merchant plus Scholar. Cyrus could have Scholar plus Thief or something like that. 
Um, you can make characters that are already useful, you know, augment that usefulness in different ways. You can take a character who has absolutely no use as their base self, like Therion, who is the thief, because the thief class sucks. But if I put Warrior on him, now I can use him and level him up, because he can do stuff for me. Uh, and within that, there are also the job point system from Bravely Default is here. You can unlock their skills, get their support skills. Even if you turn their job off, all of their support skills can still be assigned to one of your four slots. So if, for instance, Ophelia, my healer, her healing skills take a lot of SP, and I'm saying, okay, I don't want to use all that SP, I should get her the support skill that the Merchant class has, which halves your SP. So if I put Merchant on her and get her enough job points, I can just spend those, get to that. I don't need her to be a Merchant, but now I can put that in one of her support slots. It's really, like, you can kind of ignore a lot of this if you want and kind of breeze through the game, I'm assuming, or you can go really deep with it, as deep as you want, and really get good at it. And it's very rewarding. It's really interesting to play. It feeds into the battle system so well. It's just fun to play around with. It gets a little stressful at times. But yeah, it is addictive to play. And there's the basic flow of battle. It is, as I said, such a great JRPG system because it is like all the basics but built out in a really compelling way without too much kind of fat or waste on top of it, which I do think a lot of... When JRPGs are trying to, like, get fancy with their battle systems, that sometimes happens, you know? Um, It's just very, very, very good and fulfilling and satisfying to play. And, you know, the the environments are not so big that, like, even though it is random encounters, you're not going to be lost in a giant endless maze. You're generally always pretty close to a save point. You know, if you're going to wipe, you're not going to lose that much because the game also has a very robust autosave system and things like that. So it's just... It's really good. I think it's a very clear step up from Bravely Default in just about every way, and I already liked that game a lot, but I think this game, both narratively, aesthetically, uh, and in terms of the gameplay, has simplified a lot of that in interesting ways. So, I love it. If you like, you know, like a Final Fantasy-style battle system, and you want to see it done in what feels like a really tight, modern form, this is absolutely the game for you. Cool. Yeah. And definitely because you have your eight characters, you can pick your team composition, there's all this, like, freedom in the job stuff... It really does have that feeling I mentioned last week of, like, original Final Fantasy, like, 1 or or 3 also kind of has this effect, where the story is minimal, and it's more about your own kind of role-playing with it. Yeah. And this kind of has that effect, too, where there's a lot you have to fill in with it, and I like that about it. Awesome. So, yeah. Um, one flaw I would say, and this is something I've been kind of grappling with, because I think there are some strengths to this, but there's also some weaknesses. You do not have all char- eight characters with you at all times, and they do not all level together. Ah, it's that old GRPG bug. And it's weird because we're... I don't even... I don't want to say we've turned the corner with it. Some games have turned the corner with this. Yes, we are in a post-Persona 5 world where even Persona's like, yo, dog, we'll just love your characters because if not, you just don't use them. Right. If you don't know what we're referring to, in most JRPGs in the history of the genre, your team party... Your party needs to be four people, but you have more than four party members. And party members you don't use do not get you know, experience points, and party members you do use do get experience points, but that means that, like, in two of our favorite games ever, Persona 3 and 4, there are, those are practically flawless games in a lot of ways, but the party you start with, or, like, at a certain point you kind of lock into, is the one you're going to use, because if you wanted to level everyone up equally, it would quadruple the amount of time you would spend yeah. in the game. It's it's also, it's like in, they've started to change with, with Pokemon, but yes. traditionally with Pokemon, the only Pokemon that got experience were Pokemon that participated directly in the battle, yes. which usually is like the one Pokemon you're fighting with. 
And so if you wanted to level up Magikarp in Pokemon Red, it was start the battle with Magikarp, switch him out and put in Charmander or whoever and finish the battle. And then Magikarp gets a little bit of extra experience on top. And But that all that that does is incentivize you to use as few characters or Pokemon or whatever as possible because you want to maximize the amount of experience that you're getting. And if you are using a bunch of other characters... Like, if you're using, if I have my party Pokemon, and I have, like, a Charmander, a Pidgey, and a Magikarp, and a Caterpie, or whatever, if I'm using anybody other than my Charmander, my Charmander's not getting that experience. And right. I want my Charmander, my favorite Pokemon in my party, to have that as much experience as possible. That's, like, how those games work, is it's, like, you either have to then grind like a madman to get everybody up, and just, like, be like, okay, if I want to be able to use these characters, I need to, like, specifically level just them... But even when you do that, your other party members usually kind of start leveling up too because you have to use them a little bit here and there. And then they are more high level. And it's just like you're fighting this like impossible battle of I want to use this character, this Pokemon, or this something, but they're never going to be the best one I have. And I just, it, it drives you nuts. Yes. It's, it's a crazy part of those games. It's a logistical nightmare. I do think there are arguments on both sides like I you know some people like don't like that Pokemon has added the experience share Pokemon makes it optional so I don't know why you would bitch about it but like there is something to be said about like if you can level everyone at the same time that in some way also incentivizes you to like just use whatever your favorite one is and then you never actually have to bring anyone else into battle and get into the strategy of it that's I think something people would say about some of this but I do think overall you should just let everyone in a JRPG party level together I think it makes it a lot cleaner I think Persona 5 was pretty definitive proof of this because that's yeah. a that's an old school style franchise in a lot of ways with its with its battle system that finally kind of came over that hump. Yeah, because the thing is that it is such a like huge wall for newcomers in particular yes. to get over because for people who say something like, "Well, if you you don't aren't forced to use them to level them up, then you never get into the deeper strategy." But it's like, but these are people that are like like me. Like I've never gotten to any of the deeper strategy of Pokemon. I've only played the old Pokemon's that didn't have this fucking experience share system. And the reason why I never got deep into it is it's like, well, I'll just only use my Charmander slash Charmeleon slash Charizard because I will get him powerful enough that it doesn't even matter if he's weak. He will win anyways because it is a waste of my fucking time to level anybody up because then again, then my main dude isn't getting in the, all the experience yeah. anymore, right? It's kind of funny because that's how I always used to play Pokemon back in the day. And when I replayed Pokemon Crystal like a year or two ago, I talked about it on the podcast, I got into a rhythm with it I'd never gotten into before where I like honed my team and I would just cycle them. So if like they were all level 20... Then I would start with one of them, get him to level 21, put him at the bottom of the party, and kind of cycle through, but also have the team balanced enough that I could kind of cycle in terms of advantage. And there is something really interesting to it, to play it that way, but it, at the very least should be optional. like Because yeah. I, I, I'm sitting over here with my level 50 Charizard, but right. what you've got with this fucking level 21 Wartortle, bitch. It, exactly. So, like, there's pros and cons... But I do think the cons outweigh it in a lot of ways. And the bigger issue for me with Octopath Traveler isn't just that, but that all eight of your people are not accessible at the same time. So, like, I put four of them in my party, and really just three, because one of your members right. is locked. You have to, and that makes sense. It's your starting character. They are locked into your party at all times. So I have them plus three others I can put in my party. And when I'm out in the world, those are the four I have access to. So, like, if I'm in a battle and I realize, Man, you know, Cyrus would be really useful here, but I don't have Cyrus. I can't just swap him in. And I do think there's something to be said that this game might be even better if it did the Final Fantasy X thing 
And again, it baffles me that Final Fantasy X has not been borrowed from more. But Final Fantasy X did the thing where you have a big party and you have three people on the field at any time, but at any moment you can swap them out. So if you think Titus is not useful for this situation, you can kick him out and bring in the guy with the blast ball or whatever it Waka. is. Waka. Waka, yeah. Why do can, I know that? I don't and know. You don't know. I've played the game. You played the whole game through. I've only seen most of the game be played, like when I was ten years old. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So you could bring in Waka, and you could use him, and everyone would level together as you. Well, that game had a weird leveling system where it had the crystallarium kind of thing. Sphere grid. Oh, it's the sphere grid. Crystallarium is Final Fantasy Thirteen. You fucking played it. Okay. What's I'm, wrong with? I, at least that was a Final Fantasy thing I said. It's true. Yes. Yeah. But yes, the sphere grid. But it effectively did the same thing, right? Right. Yeah. Where you all got your experience together, and I think that's a really rewarding thing that like Final Fantasy didn't borrow from most games like Digimon did for yes. the Digimon story games and it's brilliant but a lot of games just didn't quite do that it's basically Pokemon if you could have multiple Pokemon on the field and then you they all leveled together yeah. which is just Digimon but yes uh, I think Octopath Traveler would be a really good candidate for that because you would just have your eight characters you could use their abilities you could swap them out I, I do think it might hurt the difficulty curve of the game if you could go that crazy with it. There's also, once you have the job system, you can start customizing people and because you there's no penalty for just swapping jobs on the fly if you feel like, eh, no one in my party right now has any sage abilities, I can throw a sage ability on someone, right? And use the mm-hmm. equipment that I need for it and whatnot. So you can do that, but it does mean that like anytime you want to change out your party members, you have to go to a bar, a tavern in a town and switch them out because that's where you switch out your party members. And then you can do stuff. It also becomes annoying where you're navigating the world and each character has different the path actions different things they can do in the world um now some of these overlap but sometimes you want a specific one and then you might have to go grab someone from the bar even though you're not trying to level them at the time so it can be a bit of a logistical headache i've gotten into it enough that i'm not noticing it as much except for one because i've basically gotten into a mode where i have an a team and a b team and my A-team is much higher level, much closer to my main character's level, and I'm using them for the higher level stuff. And my B-team is lower level, and I'm using them for the lower level stuff. And it's working pretty good, except, here's the math on this, there are eight characters. Yep. I can have three extras in a party at a time. That's three, that's six. There's a seventh character left over who, for me, is Alfin, because he fucking... I like his story. He fucking kind of sucks because he's the apothecary and he's useless. And poor Alfin, I, I leveled him a little bit today, but he was level 25 when everyone else was over 30 because I had no room for him. He's just this little, like, wimp trash boy in the background. I know. It's uh, I want to fight too, sir. Overall, it's working out. But, yeah, so I do think that's something where... It's not a huge problem for me with the game because I am so used to it with mm-hmm. JRPGs, you know? Like, this is not... This is not new to me. Yeah. This is not my first rodeo with this. It just feels like this would be a particularly good game to like at least have equal leveling or something, just so you could like swap them in when you needed to. Um, I might be able to ameliorate it a little bit soon because I have done three of the four Tressa chapters, and the fourth one, like, I could do pretty soon. It's level 45, and I have my Tressa at level. 41 or 2, and I would need to get another couple characters up there, but they'll be there soon. And once you beat your main character's story, then you can free-swap everyone. So I might be able to do like all the chap- other Chapter 4s with a more free team composition. But, you know, overall, just know that going into it, that you're going to plan for that a little bit. You also don't have to play it as obsessively as I'm playing it. Right. Like, you know, I'm about 30 hours in, and I'm maybe halfway through, but maybe not. I- I'd have to count how many of the Chapter 2s I've done. Um... 
you know, Jason Schreer's Kotaku review, he said he finished it in 32 hours. That sounds like utter fucking madness to me, like you would be racing through this thing. But if he did it, he did it, you know, right, so you yeah. can play it that way. I don't know if that would be an enjoyable way to play the game. It feels like a game to take your time with. But yeah, so those are basically my Octopath Traveler thoughts for now. Um, I love this game. It's it, It's... Very much at least my game of the year among, like, games I have paid $60 for. Celeste might still be my favorite overall, but they're both pixel art games, and that's kind of funny to have that in 2018. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is a good year. I'm really enjoying this. This is this is fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I hope... I was going to say, I hope Square Enix, you know, invests more in this kind of stuff, but then I remembered our conversation earlier. Yeah, they're going to. Probably annoyingly <laughs> oh, so. Oh, God, yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll be eventually be like... I thought you guys were joking when you made the Tokyo RPG Factory. It's like, no, this is like, you're really, you have to stop. You have to stop cranking these out. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else to talk about this week, Sean? I don't think so, no. Yeah, this is our second to last numbered podcast, but we're recording more, and, and so it's not the last for us. Yeah. But next week is the last one in the chronological order that I'm recording before I move to Iowa. So I'm stressed out and a little sad. It's also exciting. It's weird. Yep. I don't know. We get to talk about Mission Impossible next week, though, and I think that's going to be fun. Yes, I've got a lot of Mission Impossible to catch up on. Yep, so you have that to look forward to. I've got 700 more issues of The Amazing Spider-Man to read. (laughs) Yep, we've got uh, some big plans for some of the episodes while I'm away a little bit, and those are going to be really good. We've already recorded one of them. It's really good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Fuck Batman.